fucking pack off of the porch or break a pound down Get the scrap if it happen to blow it makes a round sounds Pussycat on my lap push it back and go to town now Putting rap on my back and I'm black and snatching crowns I they came back around What's going on everybody it's your boy Jordan And this is Desmond And welcome to episode 139 of Two Black Nerds yeah. That's right it's that time once again for us to bring you our opinions and hot takes on all things fandom, pop culture and entertainment As always you can find Two Black Nerds wherever you get your podcasts Please make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a friendly rating and comment to show your support. And of course, join in on the conversation each and every week by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Two Black Nerds. We appreciate that. Love y'all. And let's not forget to mention we have merchandise that's available now at twoblacknerds.com. Go check out our Nerds of Thunder collection inspired by Thor, Love, and Thunder. We got t shirts, crew neck city stickers, mugs, and tote bags. So go ahead and place those orders right now. On today's show, to commemorate the 10th anniversary of independent film studio A24, we'll be counting down our top 10 A24 films of all time from early cult hits like spring breakers to recent commercial successes like everything everywhere all at once stay tuned to see what makes each of our lists but before we get to any and all of that we're kicking off this week's podcast with a review and recap of house of the dragon episode two so last week we obviously discussed in detail the series premiere of the game of thrones prequel house of the dragon i think it was a premiere that both of us really really enjoyed for all of the work that it was able to do in setting up the characters, reintroducing us to this world that we love so much. And it was also hugely, hugely successful. We know that on the night of the premiere, they had over 10 million viewers and just recently reported by Inside HBO Max, the series premiere of House of the Dragon is now approaching more than 25 million viewers in the U.S. alone after being available for one week. This week's episode is actually up 10.2 million viewers on the night of, so it's actually an uptick from the series premiere, which you almost never see. So word Mm -hmm. is obviously catching on about House of the Dragon, but we're now two episodes in, and we got to talk about everything that went down this week. So I'll go ahead and pass it over to you. What did you think about this follow-up episode to the series premiere of House of the Dragon? You know, one of the worries I think for everyone about, you know, this show coming in is is do prequels work? Do prequel TV shows work? Of course, you've been talking about Better Call Saul and how great of a TV show that ended up being. And so it, it, it's starting to, you know, make an argument for really has have people just been telling bad prequel TV show stories or not finding their way. And so I think this 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 TV show has another small burden of trying to figure out our prequel TV show's good. Um, and, and so far, man, with episode one and now episode two, I'm, I'm still having a good time um, um, in saying the House of Dragon is doing it for me, man. I'm, I'm, I'm still very much intrigued. And at its core, it's still very much a Game of Thrones. You know, the reason in which i'm here there's a lot of of course weirdness <laughs> in this world but that i think that's part of george r. r martin's genius as well is taking this world and doing weird things to make it interesting you know we find um, um some 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 new things i think out in this episode in some new direction that definitely uh, uh keeps me interested it makes me want to get to the next episode man i also love the cast here i think they're still doing tremendous work man um uh, matt smith as damon targaryen is it's pretty amazing man um i i think he just you know uh i I think maybe you said it but you were like this dude already looks like a targaryen so it's like it just makes sense uh the things that that's happening and transpiring on screen i also find myself really loving rainier after this episode man not only of course her character but just as an actress I think she's she's also doing tremendous work here and kind of keeping me um, in, engaged in, in everything around it, man. I think the story is slowly peeling apart 
in good ways, man. The first episode had already done a good job at giving us a pretty good glimpse of who these characters are, their faults, um, um, even shoot the things they're good at. You know what I mean? I think this episode just hammered down on some of those uh, a little bit and, and also created, you know, um, some conflict, you know, between the characters. And so, man, to, to, to end it there, I, 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 this is a great, I think, second episode and follow up to the first. Um, it's still very beautiful. I, I love the way it's shot. They keep giving me visuals that I'm very proud of and, 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 and that are appeasing to the eye, too. And so, uh, man, I, I I can't wait for the next episode now, episode three. We'll see how it continues to go. But the first two, I'm still on board. So second episodes, I think, are notoriously difficult to pull off. When you have premieres that work really, really well that most general audiences typically adore and love, to follow it up with something that's equally as satisfying, it is a, it's a tall task. And I think in any scenario with a second episode coming into a brand new series, there's always going to be that added pressure of, oh, was the first episode just a fluke? Did we Mm. actually engage the audience in a meaningful way that can sustain itself throughout the course of the entire season? And coming into the second episode, I was a little nervous and apprehensive, like maybe maybe the first episode was just a flash in the pan. But I'm happy to say that that's not the case. I mostly enjoyed this episode. The series premiere is still better for me, but I think that that was not really all that surprising. I expected the series premiere to still hold you know, its presence is my favorite episode thus far, and we have a lot more to go. But the second episode, I think, did some really meaningful things to advance the story. It's it's certainly a much more talky episode than the first mm-hmm. one. The first one had the Game of Thrones action that I think we expected to see that you would want to include in the series premiere in order to hook audiences. But this one, in terms of the dialogue and just the interactions between the characters, made some meaningful steps forward in terms of where the story is going to go. And the performances, for the most part, I thought were really well done and really strong. I do have some concerns, probably more at large, about the series that I want to talk about in detail in a second here. But mostly, I enjoy myself. I thought that this was a fine episode and still satisfactory and still has me invested in this story and in this world, of course, of what they're telling. And it felt like Game of Thrones. It felt like the more dialogue-written, more political aspects of that series that we love so much, where you're seeing Mm -hmm. people jockey for position they do certain things in order to move chess pieces around so that they can advance their own positions of power all of that stuff is happening here you're seeing alliances form you're seeing slowly but surely betrayals come to the forefront i think all of that stuff is being set up very nicely here and that's why i really enjoyed it and so i think it was it was by and large a a pretty a pretty achievable um or at least a pretty a pretty sizable success i should say especially when comparing it to such a strong series premiere but let's go ahead and talk about this in more detail if you've not seen episode two we're going to do some spoilers and talk about some of the big themes and and things that happened this episode the first thing that i want to get to before we even talk about the story is the fact that We got an opening title sequence now, and come to find out, they are using the exact same music as they did from (laughs) Game of Thrones. Of course, the actual graphic montage of what we're seeing in the beginning of the episode is very different than what was in Game of Thrones, but they're using the exact same music here. They didn't change Mm -hmm. that at all. What did you think about that choice? Is that something that you were pleased to see, or did did you prefer to see something different, maybe a different musical choice? Yeah, I don't know. I think it was bittersweet for me overall, man. Part of me... Uh, uh, likes it just because that familiarity always feels good. I just remember every week when you sit down and you're ready to watch Game of Thrones, that's you when you hear that song, you're in Game of Thrones mode. I, I like that about it. The other side of me, man, it's like this show, although tied to Game of Thrones and the prequel of Game of Thrones, existing in the world of Game of Thrones, still very much feels like its own thing and like it deserves its own its own song. Uh, I I loved the part of the first episode where 
the song was fresh, but it had the it had the the kind of the remnants of the original Game of Thrones song. I kind of like that because it's like okay, get us back into the world. But now that we're here, part of me feels like it's okay to to branch out and come up with something new. I'm curious if like they were afraid of of a new song where people wouldn't like it as much. I remember that happened like when Power came out with a new song, everyone was like, "What the hell is this?" You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I wonder if like they were afraid of something like that, or if they were. Uh, you know, it's just easier for them. Like maybe they were like, eh, it's a lot of work to make a whole new song that's going to stick the same. So let's stick with the same, uh, let's stick with the same song. So I'm really curious about the decision behind it, but I would have been, I was here for a new song, man. And and, and they didn't give it. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of two minds there. I would have liked to see something new just because I do think that as a new series, it should have its own identity. And if you want to make something iconic, that's going to resonate. You have to at least give it a shot to, to do something and to make something new. And they didn't they didn't take that chance here, which is a little mm-hmm. unfortunate. The flip side of it is, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, which that original iconic Game of Thrones music is one of the most recognizable pieces of music, I think, in pop culture at this point. So it's understandable as as to the mm-hmm. thinking behind it, but I would have liked to just see a different direction because I feel like over the course of time, as we continue to watch this series, which has already been renewed for season two, the more and more you watch something, the more and more it's going to catch on. It doesn't have to be the greatest piece of music ever conceived, but if it's good enough and us as an audience is going to watch this show every week, I feel like after a certain amount of time, it's going to catch on. You're going to start to have that replayability quality to it that we that we established with that first that first theme that, that that was so iconic but also a part of this is the actual like graphic montage which is different mm-hmm. and noticeably it's much more blood soaked than the previous one <laughs> there was blood everywhere and I, I just sorry. wonder i wonder what the omen for this might mean for the show what did you think about just like the graphics that they put together for this opening montage and i you know i couldn't necessarily decode everything that was in there and we know that typically with these opening montages they change and evolve over time if you look at the game of thrones one it was different almost every mm-hmm. season maybe even like episode to episode based on the events happening in the series what do you make of just like the visual look of that seeing all that blood you know just sort of be soaked in i guess the retelling and the history of the targaryen family yeah uh i think it's pretty cool man because it those open those game of thrones openings are so you know they're picture based and not of real things you know it's literally kind of random visuals reminds you of a picture book and i love that about it because it kind of makes you uh kind of sort of guess what's happening here and so i really like First of all, the blood that you're talking about, I was like, uh, yes, this is this is based off fire and blood. You know what I'm saying? Like, give me the blood. But I think one of the, the other things that I like about this show is that we know we know the ending, right? That's how this prequel works. We know how what happens to the Targaryens in the end. And so I, I love that we don't know the in-between. And just because we do know, you know, they end up getting getting kind of wiped out. We, we don't know where the winds are either. And so it's interesting because a lot of us could be like looking for the downfall and then they win or I don't know, a lot happens in the in-betweens. And so when, when I look at visuals like that, I'm over here trying to guess like, is this good for them or bad for them? You know what I'm saying? It, 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 it's really crazy and interesting to look at. But I thought it was cool overall. I, I, I can also tell they upped it from Game of Thrones, you know, a little bit. Like, the graphics are slightly better than some of the th- stuff Game of Thrones was doing in the end. So I'm, I'm all here for it. I like the uh, somewhat mystery, but I also like the, you know, the blood is coming <laughs> kind of type thing. Certainly. It's a very striking visual, to say the least. Let's get into the episode. So this episode, surprising to me at least, takes place six months 
after the events of the premiere episode. And so we're six months firmly established after Princess Rhaenyra is named the heir to the Targaryen family. But we see that really not all that much has changed. She's still serving wine for the small council. Her opinion is not really validated. Nobody really respects her point of view at this point. We know that this is a patriarchal society, that all the power belongs to the men. And so when they're speaking, when they're making decisions, that's who really has a say in any of these decisions that are made. Um, Were you surprised to see that this takes place relatively far after the events of last week and what we saw? And just also, like, what did you think about the fact that Although she's named heir, which presumably would be a really, really important thing to push her character forward into a position of power, nothing at all has changed. Yeah, it's you can't say, you know, you can't be surprised at all. Um, just the world of the patriarchy. And and it's it's really us looking through the eyes of Rhaenyra trying to figure out how it's supposed to be navigated um, in, in, in the ways in which it attempts to be dismantled and what that looks like, man. Um, I... I'm I'm really hoping that it I don't know we find some other crazy thing happens besides her becoming heir. I hope like I don't know something somebody gets appointed to her and everyone's like what this person shouldn't be you know under her command or something. I hope something else crazy happens um, in that way uh, just to make it a little bit more jarring. But I, 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 I again I can't say I'm surprised at all about what's going down with the patriarchy. Yeah, I think uh, once you once you firmly establish in this world that the men do make the decisions, which is something we've already known, that's a that's a carryover from the other Game of Thrones stories. And it's also just a reflection of these times in general in which this is based on. Of course, this is a fictional world, but the time feels similar where Mm -hmm. the men didn't make the rules. And so I think it just reintroduces us to that concept that, yeah, women, although they're presented with maybe a position of power, at least temporary power. It's not anything that's actually authentic and substantial. It's really just a title for the time being. And Viserys, I think, throughout a lot of this episode is trying to comfort her and let her know, you will have your time. You will have an opportunity to come of age and make these decisions. That will happen. But now you just kind of have to sit back and observe and watch and continue to play the role that that you have as this cupbearer in these meetings. And I think it's also interesting to, to note that she is the first female heir of any kingdom in this world. So this mm-hmm. is unprecedented, unprecedented territory for everybody. And so that shock factor of the fact that he named her this. And of course that brings a lot of turmoil, I think from other kingdoms and other factions and families who just flat out don't agree with that decision. That's coming to bear here. And the fact that six months later, nothing at all has changed. And I think it's effective to fast forward that amount of time to just again showcase nothing at all nothing at all has changed here the status quo was being maintained even much so that Rainey's says so she she's kind of firmly believing in the idea like yeah nothing's gonna change around here and your father Mm -hmm. is not a fool um he's gonna he's gonna always uphold what is right in this world and that is the patriarchy at least what they perceive to be right it's not necessarily the best thing to do but that's what they perceive to be right and so i think all of that stuff is just really resonant here and that's why they they went ahead and fast forwarded um six months of advance in time but what what's also interesting about the series is that characters like rhaenyra and malicent are going to change over the course of this series we we know that there are older actors that are going to be portraying these two particular characters who are very, very important. So Millie Alcock, of course, is playing Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen right now. 
and Emma Darcy is going to be taking over the role apparently about midway through this season. And then on the other hand of it, Olivia Cook is going to be taking over Allison's character um, yep. from Emily Carey also around midway through the season. And I believe the the time jump is going to be about 10 years at that point mm-hmm. um, into the future. And so I find that really fascinating because we don't typically see that within the context of a series where for the first half of a season, probably for five, maybe even six episodes, we're spending a lot of time with these actors, these younger actresses that are playing these roles. And then all of a sudden we're going to transition and, and time jump and, and have to almost kind of be reintroduced to new characters because they're going to be different. They're going to grow and change and evolve. And of course, the actresses that are portraying them are different as well. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Because I, I just I just wonder if that's going to be a jarring transition for, for us as an audience to deal with, considering we haven't really been in that territory before. But there could also be some potential upsides. What's your, you know, sort of reaction to to that impending recasting of these characters that's going to come later this season? Yeah, no, I I actually was like doing research on this very thing just to figure out where the characters, how old they are in real life now, and how old um, they are in real life, you know, when when the, when the new characters come in. And so, I think it it will absolutely be drawn for us. And I think it's weird. It'll one reason it'll be weird because you know we've been sitting, we're going to be sitting with these people, like you said, probably around five six episodes, and we're going to learn them. And I'm I'm just so curious on how that translates to completely new age of characters after having spending so much time. Like I can't even imagine. I don't I don't I don't, I don't even have a good example, but I can't even imagine you're sitting with freaking I don't know some teenage Power Rangers. And then a time jump happens midway through the season for the rest of the season. And they're all like 40. You know what I'm saying? It's like, dang, is that Tommy? Like, I don't even, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It's just, it'll, it'll be interesting when it happens. Um, but I, I think I, the reason I like it is because it's trying something that feels very new to me. Like you said, I, it feels very much unprecedented territory, something we've never seen. And I'm interested to see how they pull it off. What I will say is I, I like how they're going to older actresses. Because of the 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 experience they hold as actresses too, you know what I mean. Like I think it's really cool to say, oh, here comes Olivia Cook. You know what I'm saying? Who she, you know she's been around for a little bit, and to see how she plays Millicent versus you know um, other girls. So I don't know. I think I think there's some there's some again more bittersweetness there that we have to see before I com- figure out if it's completely bitter or or completely sweet. So yeah, we will have to see. Yeah, it's a risky choice, right? And I think because we haven't seen it done often, it, it bears some concern as to why they would make this choice. Obviously, this is an adaptation, so this is reminiscing the, the story and the time jumps that took place in that. And this is covering a large swath of time, very ambitious type of storytelling here. And this almost makes at least the first half of the season feel like an extended prologue where... Mm-hmm. By the time we get to season two, season three, inevitably, once we do get those those future iterations, we'll remember, of course, these younger actresses when they played these characters. But I think it'll be so far off into the mm-hmm. future where we're really spending time with Olivia Cook and Emma D- Darcy's portrayal of yeah. those two particular characters where we won't even really remember what it was like. Of course, we're living in it now and we're going week to week to see how that's going to translate on screen. But I think once we get further enough out and we spend enough time with the older iterations of those characters, then Mm. it'll be fine. It's also, I think, smart because in this world, and we're going to talk about this in a second more, but in this world of heirs and who's going to be next up and firstborn children and, 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 and marriage successions and all of that stuff, I think it's really, uh, it's really poignant to have these really young, 
girls in this show portraying these characters that are being sort of wed off to older gentlemen. Mm. And by the time we see their older counterparts in the series, like all of the old guys are still going to be the same actors. It's still going to be King Viserys. It's still going to be Corliss. (laughs) You know, these people Mm. are going to look the same. And so I think it's going to kind of reinforce the creepiness of all this shit. Like, yo, y'all were really out here marrying little girls. And that's just like wild as hell. And all of these younger actors, because I believe they said that everybody under 18 will have an older counterpart eventually in the show when they make that time jump. So it just reinforces that idea of just how weird this whole thing is. But let's talk more about that because one of the big centerpieces of this episode is the fact that everybody around King Viserys wants him to get married again because they want him to bear a child, a firstborn child at least, um, a son I should say, to be his next natural heir to the Targaryen kingdom. Although he has named Rhaenyra as that, that next heir. And so... This is a lot of people obviously not respecting her position, not really agreeing with his decision in in terms of what he wanted to do here. And we see other characters, you know, really come to him and confront him about this. We see, you know, people like Renice and Lord Corliss who try to come up with an agreement that they would Mm -hmm. that they would send off their child to marry King Viserys and bear his children when she comes of age. She's 12 years old and she tells him like, hey, I've already agreed with my people I won't start to bear children for you until I'm 14 years old, which is just wild as hell to think about. But of course, the idea and the thinking is that they're young. They can produce a lot of children. They're really fertile, whatever the case may be. It's just all strange. But this is Game of Thrones. So they they are absolutely leaning into what makes this world tick, unfortunately. And it's very mm-hmm. disgusting and nasty stuff when you think about it in depth. But what did you think about just everybody coming at him with all of these different propositions and trying to, again, jockey for position to, to make their case as to why he should succeed his marriage and, and marry somebody else and start to bear other children to be the successors to the Targaryen Empire. You know, I think I think Corliss and Rhaenys have at least a good reason at coming at Viserys for wanting to to put their houses together, right? They said it, it was it was like that at some point in time, history wise. Um of course Rhaenys clearly was one of the people probably should have been in Rhaenyra's position, right? Where she was the heir to the throne at some point. She still feels cheated out of that. Corliss is also, he's the king of the sea, right? Like, why? what other reason not <laughs> to join our houses? And I can give you this powerful, uh, uh, really, lineage that, again, comes with all these ships and, and things like that for the sea. So it's like, well, why not? <laughs> you know, kind of type thing. It only makes sense here. But on the flip side, right, Lena... Uh, uh, Valerian, like you said, twelve years old, which didn't even she didn't look twelve in the dang show to me. I was pretty sure she's like eight. Look seven. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh, what's going on here? What one thing about that entire scene where Viserys um, and, and Lena are kind of walking and, and talking, and you know, Lena is like, you know, you don't have to bed me until I'm, you know, fourteen. This and that, blah blah blah. He's like, did your father tell you to say it? that whole thing? What's different in Game of Thrones, I think, a little bit. And I think this 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 is a moment that shows us like Viserys is one of like the not least crazy people in this realm. Where like before in watching Game of Thrones, us the viewers were like, nah, bro, this is weird. But the characters of Game of Thrones, you could tell we're like kind of comfortable with it because they're like, oh, this is how things go. But Viserys in that moment, you can tell he's like not okay with this thing at all. And I thought that was very new. For, you know, something we hadn't seen in Game of Thrones is like this dude that's like, y'all see how young this girl is? Like, are we really talking about this right now? Like, is this the conversation? And so 
Um, yeah, man, I just thought that was a, a different moment, or it would have looked different in the Game of Thrones context than it does here in House of the Dragon. Just I, and, and it also spoke to the way you know Viserys is. It's like this dude actually might have a, you know a, a head on. He might be the the greatest king of the world, but I think his morality compass has felt right pretty much the entire time of the things going on. Um, and so, man, of course, a crazy, wild <laughs> conversation to be having with this little girl. But also, it's like, this dude is like kind of feeling how we feeling. Like, I don't I don't really like this a lot. So I, it, it was it was definitely a surprise um, in that in that regard and not a surprise, uh, clearly, in, in by the way that the realm operates. And let's not forget, Viserys is still grieving the loss of his previous wife. Like, that mm-hmm. is only six months old at this point, and so they're thrusting th- this pressure on him to remarry, and he is getting older, and so they want him to, you know, continue to make children and, and, and hopefully make a, a, a natural-born son, but this guy is still in tremendous pain from everything that happened and what we saw in the series premiere. Also, Renice, Corliss, they do have a good reasoning as to joining the houses. I think that that is fair and accurate, but also there seems to be underlying tension renice it's obvious i think she's still sour about not being absolutely right like she's absolutely salty as fuck about that but lord corliss in this episode has like some underlying tension there as well that i think we're starting to see come out more and more Mm -hmm. as evidenced by this this alliance that he wants to establish with damon by the end of this episode and it's like well what is this about i want to i want to figure out where did this come from it seems like there's something there from corliss's standpoint that's kind of driving him to to want to be combative against Viserys or at least come up with some sort of contingency plan to make sure that everything goes in motion in the way that he wants to. So it'll be interesting to see how they continue to unpack that with those two particular characters because I think that there is like some vendettas that are going to be established between all of these different all of these different oh, yeah. parties involved. Um also by the end of this in terms of remarrying Viserys does makes it makes a decision. He actually chooses Allison to be to be the person that he's going to remarry, which pisses Renera off, obviously, because her and Allison are really, really good friends. They're really close. And this is something that Viserys did behind Renera's back, obviously choosing her to be the next mm-hmm. natural heir. Now he's going to remarry and he's going to marry Allison, who's this friend to Renera. It just muddies the water so much it very much complicates their relationship and i think that this sows the seeds for probably Mm -hmm. one of at least the main conflicts that we are going to see for the rest of the season especially when they do get older and we see that time jump and i would presume again having read the books i'm not a reader of these these particular books but i would presume that by the time we do jump into the future they're still not going to be cool i think that there's still going to be a lot of conflict between those two that is going to manifest in in many different scenarios obviously with just this whole succession storyline that they're doing what do you think about his choice with allison what did you think about him going behind renera's back not letting her know that he was going to do that what do you make of all of this and how to play out in the future yeah it's, it's so weird man that i don't know there's like there is a lot of honesty coming out of Viserys too, but then not telling Rhaenyra how you, you know, how you're really leaning. I think it's interesting, especially after Rhaenyra's like, you can say what you want, you're the king. <laughs> but him on the flip side, he's over here like, we should be able to speak however we want to speak to each other kind of type thing. And it's like, are you completely following <laughs> how you, you know, the the words in which you speak? Or was are you being kind of hypocritical there? And I think, I think he was afraid in the moment to kind of tell Rhaenyra how he was thinking. Um, about Mary Allison, man, I really do. I don't. I think he didn't know how to break it to her. I know that even sounds worse, breaking it to her in front of the High Council. But like, I don't know. I just, I, I think the dude is, again, as much as we speak towards moral compass, he's he doesn't have the biggest backbone in the world either. He's afraid of a lot of things, um, and and and, and he faces a, a lot of things that I think other people would 
you know, uh, lunge at, you know what I mean, or, or do something very differently about it. I think that is part of Corliss's thing, too. I think he kind of has three little grudges. One, as soon as he's just like, you're not going to marry my daughter. Like, you, when he, he felt like he was denying a whole, you know, the the, the right for, for their, um, their, their bloodlines to meet and for him to marry his daughter. Two, I also think he's just very protective of Rainice. I, I know he feels some type of way as much as Rainice feels some type of way because – she gets the throne, he gets the throne too. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, and I think that third thing is just regular high council things, right? Where you take a vote, Corliss's hand is up, and then Viserys says no. I'm sure there's enough of those have added up over time where Viserys is like, all right, now, this is, you know what I'm saying? Like, he, he already told him no about the um, the crab. What's his name? The crab killer? What's that his name? I think crab. it's something like that. The crab, the, I don't know. Crab, crab yeah. something. Yeah, the crab. So I'm gonna call him a crab killer. But it, kind of, the crab killer, he, I feel like he feels some type of way telling him like, well, this is not the time. And Viserys is like, we gotta hop on this. You know what I'm saying? So I think those are the, just three reasons for 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 Corliss to feel the way that he does and end up, you know, doing the stuff. I mean, uh, the, the kind of the pack with Damon by the end. And so this marriage, man, it, it is. I mean, you you just talked about it, but it's probably gonna be one of the biggest decisions we see. This entire season, it's here, happened in episode two. As soon as it happened, I was like, oh, man, so many people are going to fall out because there's just multiple people that are just not going to be okay with that. Again, Corliss and Rhaenys, shoot, is is Allison herself okay with it? She feels like she's being forced into this when you look at it. there, You know what I'm saying? And, I mean, nobody is really okay with it except for kind of Viserys. And even he is being forced into it. He didn't want to make this decision at all. You know what I mean? So it's crazy that just because of the way things are built in this world, that a decision got made that absolutely nobody's happy with. That's the crazy thing. Like nobody's okay with this, but everyone has to be okay with it because of the laws they set in place, which is why I love Rhaenyra a lot. She's like, where well, I'm going to change that shit. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here, but I'm going to change it. And so, um, yeah, it, it just brings us to a very interesting, I think, conflict, like you said, that will set up the time skip. It'll set up everything to 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 really give us um, and show us what you know the show is about. Yeah, I think uh, even Allison, she seems I don't want to say clueless, but I, I don't know if she really understands all the things that she gets into. I don't think she really understands because even mm-hmm. in the previous episode when Otto tells her like, hey, go up to his room and, you know, take care of him right now. I don't even think that she comprehends what exactly that means in this right. moment. And so like even mm-hmm. now she doesn't really understand, you know, all of the stuff and like what it's going to ultimately mean for her character and just like her relationship with Renera. So it'll be interesting to see how that, that plays out um, on a little bit of a tangent. I just kind of want to talk more generally about the show um, outside of this episode, because what I'm noticing here is that this is a much more it feels like a much more intimate story thus far than what we got in Game of Thrones in terms of the scale and the amount of characters. Mm-hmm. This is just the Targaryen family, at least up until this point. I don't know how much goes further into the future of the series. I don't know what the books, you know, did in terms of expanding the scope with other characters. But, you know, Game of Thrones, there were just a massive, massive heap of people that we were constantly introduced to. You had so many factions. You had the Lannisters and the Targaryens and the the Greyjoys and the Starks mm-hmm. and the Baratheons. You had all these people. You had the, the Night King and his army. You went to Dorne. You went to just all these different locations. And I think one of the genius aspects of Game of Thrones is just how many people you become invested into over the course of the entire series. This is smaller. This is very much focused on just a few people, again, at least up until this point. And a part of me kind of misses just the massive amount of people that we would have to keep up with and all the different different names we would have to learn over and over and over again <laughs> by watching Game of Thrones. Whereas here, it's like, yeah, we're talking about like six people. It's, you know, so far, it's like six people. Yeah. And in the future, we're going to talk about those same six people, but 
three of them are going to just be older than what they are now. Um, is that something that's been like, you know, sort of on your mind that you've noticed that, 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 that does it bother you? Do you kind of prefer this method in terms of what we're seeing here with a little bit of a smaller, more focused stories as opposed to the more expansive amount of characters that we got in Game of Thrones? Yeah, it's um, it's something I, I still have to figure out. I have thought about it, um, but it's something I still have to sit on for a little bit because it didn't start completely like this in Game of Thrones. Like there was more names in the beginning for sure. But it also was smaller than it ends up being in like a season five. You know what I mean? Season five, you're like, all right, everybody and their mama's in this show. We got to draw diagrams to figure out who's over <laughs> here, who's over there. I mean, there's just a lot going. The Cliganes, the mountains, and the it was just a ton of stuff happening. And so I, I think they are going to start to kind of do things uh, uh, spread out. But I think they're just doing it slower. Like, you know, after, you know, we'll talk about it in a second. But after we kind of see... They even come out of Dragonstone. I'm like, okay, who's all in there? <laughs> What's going on in Dragonstone? I'm hoping like we get an episode that introduces more characters. You know what I mean? That comes with with that that setting. I'm hoping we get to the shores of where uh, the crab killer is, and we see like we learn about factions over there that continue to progress through the story. And I, I don't know. Right right now is is something I have to figure out. Um, but I think that. They could be still heading in the direction towards a bunch of people. I think they just wanted, possibly want to give us a foundation, but I could be wrong. I don't know. I have to see. Yeah, I do hope so. I do hope that we get lots and lots of characters. I would love that. Uh, perhaps it is like better set for season two. Like you said, let's introduce our primary characters, and then maybe by the end of this season or leading into a season two, we'll start to see a lot more of those people. But yeah, Game of Thrones was always, always adding people every single <laughs> episode and every season, and I'm just like, Jesus, Christmas, yeah. there's so many names to remember. But it was a part of the fun, though, to remember all of that stuff and like juggle all of those different balls, and then by the end of the story, it contracted. It became a lot more intimate and small and it was less mm-hmm. and less characters as as we further got along because everybody was dying so I, you know, I just I, deaths. it's a lot of people dying <laughs> so i just wonder you know is that going to be like a similar methodology that they'll apply to this show or they're going to go in a different direction but you mentioned it so let's talk about damon targaryen played by matt smith um he does some shady shit this episode as he did the last episode um ultimately what he does here is he steals a dragon egg from king's landing he leaves a note referring to himself as the rightful heir um and he also writes that he's taking Masaria, i think her name was um Mm -hmm. and he's taking her from the brothel and he's going to make her his second wife and that she's pregnant and the wedding is in two days and the king is invited he does all of this in order to go king viserys to coming to dragonstone but king viserys does not go to dragonstone he sends Otto instead and we do get this this confrontation between between daemon targaryen and Otto at dragonstone and ultimately it's all broken up by rhaenyra coming in on the dragon to to really you know sort of allow cooler heads to prevail so that there's not this big massive battle in the middle of dragonstone and i gotta say that this sequence was breathtakingly just like beautiful on a visual scale what they did here the way that they made look made dragonstone look was really haunting and uninviting and i just thought that the whole production design was incredible here and also the dragons looked great but what did you think about just this entire sequence seeing that confrontation between viserys and Otto go down really on the steps of dragonstone and then ultimately rhaenyra coming in to intervene it felt like Otto was about to get torched first and foremost. I was like, oh my God, are we here already? <laughs> I ain't gonna lie. Part of me was like, I hope this happens <laughs> because we just haven't seen it yet and I know what's coming down the line. But uh, man, I love just the, a lot of times we see shows like this and characters are a little bit more one dimensional than exist in Game of Thrones, which is why George R. R. Martin is a genius because he does work on so many different levels. 
And to see the difference between how Damon is interacting with Otto is so different, by the way, between Rainier gets there. You could definitely tell. Uh, you, you kind of spoke in the last episode how Viserys and, and, and Damon clearly love each other. But now in 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 this moment when Rhaenyra shows up, you can tell how much, you know, Damon and, and loves Rhaenyra and at least like respects her, you know, on some on, on some level, even though it is her niece. They they very much bickered like brother and sister in this moment, you know, uh, in, in terms of what was going on. And I thought uh, it was very interesting. I love how Rhaenyra comes in. Just like a beast, man. Again, it felt very much Daenerys Targaryen out here, Miss Stormborn. I was like, oh yeah, this is exactly where she gets it from. <laughs> like she she came in like, I mean the the she had the poise. She was talking her shit. She she didn't look like she was nervous. You know what I'm saying? She's like, no, nah, I'm the heir to the throne, and I ride dragons, <laughs> and 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 this is what I do. And so I'm I'm coming here to confront my uncle, and and I love again how his tone just changes a little bit when he, when she pulls up because. I think one of course we know there's a ton of jealousy in Damon, right? That's like I can tell it's gonna be like his whole thing for the rest of the season is like that's how the hell does he get back to be an heir? And there's like, well, you gotta kill me. Like I I've already been named heir. That's the only way. You have to kill me. Um and and, and he has to be like he I know in his mind, part of him is like, Yeah, you're right. And the other part of him is like, I'm not gonna kill my niece. Like, what's wrong with me? You know what I'm saying? So he kinda has to give up in that moment. And go kind of think about again what's going on. And so, again, I, I just love how one force was being met, met with a whole nother force that was very unexpected. But I also love how it looks like a peek in what the Dance of Dragons means, right? We know at some point this is going to go down with the, with, with the, with the family. Um, and, and, and the Dance of Dragons, it, it, we know it to be a civil war. And, and, and this looks like as soon as she pulls up on Cyrax and Damon has his dragons, like, okay, this is what the Dance of Dragons could look like in the future. So it was just really cool to see. It was beautiful. Uh, and I love the way it ended. He gave, he gave the egg back because Rainier was like, well, you're going to get his damn egg back. <laughs> and so I, I loved every bit of it, man. Matt Smith is just so good in this role. You can tell he's really going to be the star of everything we're seeing here. And kind of like one of the only other things that I would have preferred more be in this episode was more Matt Smith as Damon. Like, I just want to Absolutely. see him all the time. This is only the second episode, and I'm sure we're going to get our fix of Matt Smith as Damon here. But that was kind of my only gripe. Like, I just wanted to spend more time with him because mm -hmm. he's he's going to step out really is, I think, the the shining star of the series just because of that anger and that rage that exists behind those eyes, those really steely eyes that he has. And he has this real grievance against Viserys, you know, his brother about being the rightful heir. And he's also, he seems very, very intelligent and very much ahead of the curve and almost 10 steps ahead of everybody else. Because even this plan that he hatches, it almost works, you know, Viserys almost goes there, but he sends Otto instead, you know, and I think, it only takes so many times where he probably is going to have to put a plan in motion to work and outsmart everybody to get what he wants ultimately. Mm -hmm. And that, that's going to continue. And we ultimately see that that does end up being some sort of at least the beginnings of an alliance with Corliss. Again, we talked about Cor Corliss earlier. There seems to be a lot there with his character in terms of just like some of this resentment that he has. And um, he, he wants to develop a plan to go against it's a, the, the name is the crab feeder, but I, I like crab killer better. So we can, we can keep rolling <laughs> with that. But, um, you know, Corliss, he wants to take care of the stepstones problem so that his shipping situation is going to be safe and the crab feeder is just obviously like really really dangerous and he can't get the king's approval you know to help out with this plan and so he goes to Damon to establish you know some sort of alliance that will ultimately benefit them both um what do you possibly foresee out of this alliance between these two characters obviously there's still a lot to tell here but I guess just wrapping up here with our final thoughts on this episode and maybe moving into next week what do you think about this potential alliance between this two and how dangerous it might ultimately become and what mm -hmm. that might all look like 
I just have a feeling, knowing Damon, that Corliss isn't going to come out on top like he think he is. I don't know what that looks like. Even as they're hashing out the deal, I wish that was like something a little bit more concrete. Like if I do this for you, I get this like on paper. You know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm like, okay, what does everybody get out of the situation if they do come out on top fighting, fighting the crab feeder? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I just have a feeling. Again, this is Damon Targaryen we're talking about that Corliss is not going, is not going to win <laughs> in which he thinks he does. This is one of those things where I think in the end, Viserys will end up being right, even though it may not seem like it in the moment. In which it's like, okay, give, it has to be the right moment. I don't want to go to war until I have to go to war. But because Damon and, 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 and Corliss is bringing the war to, to the crab feeder, something's going to go wrong. Um, and I'm, I can't wait to see what that is. Of course, as psych, psycho as that sounds, that's why we're here, to see crazy stuff go wrong. Um, but yeah, man, I, th- I think it's interesting. And I think that no matter what happens, that Damon is going to be the victor and Corliss Man, as, as unfortunate as it is, uh, it, he's hard to like him in this show. He's the black guy, but he's hard to like in the show. It's like, man, dude, why are you doing this? You don't have to be like this, man. Um, but he is, and so uh, I, I worry for him completely. Yeah, that crab feeder, man, he looks fucking wicked. That whole visual <laughs> of seeing him like feed crabs, like the human flesh of people, like that shit was intense. I just wasn't expecting to see that this episode. Obviously, this is like a almost like a supernatural creature, something mm-hmm. that just feels unreal. And I think uh, in the preview of next week's episode, we're probably going to get a battle with Damon going to battle against the crab feeder and his army and whatever exists there. So I'm very much looking forward to that because I think visually it might be really striking. And to your point, it might result in something that's just like not beneficial, maybe even for either party. Like Damon seems like he's on the ropes, at least by the preview. So something might go down that's unfavorable mm-hmm. for him. And that also might in turn affect Corliss and his plan and probably creates even more distrust between Viserys and his small council, especially Corliss, which just ultimately helps this whole conflict rise up even further. I think it's just going to add a, a little bit more fuel to that fire. So I'm very curious as to see how it all plays out. But I'm, I'm, I'm very much excited still very much invested into the show and what they have coming over the next few weeks, but we'll have to definitely wait by and see what all they have in the next few episodes. But those are our thoughts on episode two of house of the dragon. If you've checked it, checked out the latest episode on HBO and HBO max, definitely hit us up and let us know what you think. And with that being said, let's go ahead and transition to talking about a couple of movies that we just saw. First up, we have to talk about George Miller's brand new film, 3000 years of longing. My name is Alethea. My story is true. I am a solitary creature by nature. I have no children, no siblings, no parents. I did once have a husband. If there is fate, who can say? But in the Grand Bazaar of Istanbul, I chose a memento. I like it. Whatever it is, I'm sure it has an interesting story. So, what will you wish for? What is your heart's desire? I do have a question. What does one do with three wishes? You'll see. (laughs) 
there's no story about wishing that is not a cautionary tale. We all have desires, even if they remain hidden from us. But it is your story, and I cannot wait to see where it goes. Oh, how it might end. Hello. Hello. He'll be staying for a while. I'm beginning to wish we'd never met. Don't say that! Make a wish! Save yourself! I have a wish. Now, this movie is directed by George Miller, and it's written by George Miller, Miller and Augustus Gore, and it's starring Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. So, this is George Miller's first film since Mad Max Fury Road came out all the way back in 2015. So, it's been over seven years since he's made a feature-length movie. George Miller notoriously takes his time between films. He definitely adds a lot of care and attention to everything that he puts out. That doesn't always necessarily mean great returns, but he noticeably takes time, and he also is older. So, of course, I think he's making movies a little bit less frequently than he used to. Obviously, George Miller has become a legendary director, most notably because of the Mad Max franchise and what he was able to achieve there. But he's done other really, really good stuff as well. He's done the Eases of Witches of Eastwick, excuse me. He's also mm. made Babe, which is a great movie. Happy mm -hmm. Feet, very fun movie. So he definitely has an impressive resume and a really diverse resume. And here, 3,000 Years of Longing is a fantasy story. This is a story about a djinn played by Idris Elba, and he's basically unlocked from his lamp by Tilda Swinton's character. It's very much like Aladdin. It's a genie in a bottle story, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And I saw certain people were calling this Aladdin for adults. I went into this movie <laughs> very excited about it, very much looking forward to it. Again, George Miller, I think, is a very, very sublime director, has done such extraordinary stuff. And of course, Mad Max Fury Road has become one of my favorite movies ever, just because of the sheer fucking awesomeness of that picture so looking forward to this obviously Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba both very talented actors and I gotta say walking out of it I was very much disappointed by it I did not really enjoy this film as much as I wanted to and that's not to say that it's a bad movie because I don't think it's a bad movie it's actually incredibly well made on a technical and visual level this thing is a beauty. It's gorgeous to look at because it does take place over the course of thousands and thousands of years. Essentially, Idris Elba's character, he is the djinn. He's telling the story about all the times he's had different masters throughout the course of history and what they would wish for and also sometimes how he would fall in love with these people. So it is a, a fantasy love story, a fantasy romance to that degree. And so you get a lot of moments where you're going back in time. You're seeing many different time periods displayed on screen. And that was the least interesting part of the movie. The other mm -hmm. half of the movie is Idris Elba telling these stories to Tilda Swinton in a hotel room for the majority of the flick. And I was much more invested into that side of the picture than the other side of it because what I found is in a lot of those flashback sequences and a lot of those sequences that take place over the course of history, you just don't get enough time to spend with certain characters to understand who they are, get to know their motivations, what makes them tick. You don't learn about any of that stuff. It's really all from his perspective as the djinn and what he went through, which is fine. It helps you build a relationship with him, but there's kind of a flip side to that that you just never really see. And mm -hmm. it creates this 
this almost like visual whiplash because you're going back and forth all the time between the past and the present. And I was just not invested at all in the past, even though it looked great because you're again, you're looking at historical periods of time, which there were a lot of different costumes and a lot of production design that had to be on display, just stuff that again, visually looked gorgeous, but from a story perspective, it felt so fractured to me because I wanted to just spend more time with Tilda Swinton and her relationship with the Jen in this movie. I wanted to see more of that develop because there is romance and feelings and things of that nature that develop there. And by the time you get to the end of the movie, you just kind of feel a little a little cheated that you just didn't get to have that opportunity to understand them more as people individually and how they came to learn about each other and grow towards each other. And so I walked out of this really, really disappointed. I just don't think it worked. I think it was it was a very flawed experience. Again, I don't think it's a bad movie. Certain people mm-hmm. will like this. I think certain people will gravitate towards this and see how well made it is and also maybe even relate to the story and have that sense of this romanticism that's displayed over the course of 3,000 years. But for me, it just didn't work and, and ultimately left me really disappointed. Oh, man, it's no bueno. Um, it's really interesting because George Miller is also one of those people. That man just be making everything um and so hearing even the type that the of movie that this is and then you think about freaking mad max <laughs> it's like what 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 are we talking about here um no it's crazy though um because when you when you see tilda swinton and idris elba on a poster you're like i'm ready for this like what's going to happen here but we've been literally echoing this for so long man like the story has to be there and it just sounds like um, like you said, it was fractured. I also had another idea that you, you said it was like Aladdin for adults. But one of the best parts of Aladdin is Aladdin and Genie's relationship. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like the ways in which that falls out <laughs> throughout throughout Aladdin, the movie, after becoming friends in such a short amount of time. So it just sounds like they didn't even do that, <laughs> you know, kind of uh, at least in the, in the amount of time in which they should have. So, man, it's unfortunate, but um, I guess it is what it is. Yeah, you know, George Miller, that's one of the things I like about him. I like the fact that he can make these really hardcore Mad, Mad Max movies and then he can make a more family affair type of film like Babe. Like, he he's so diverse in that respect, and I think that's why sure. he is one of the most talented filmmakers. So to come and do something different than what he just previously did with this fantasy romance, again, I was in for it. I was totally here for it. And just the ambition of, of the story and what they were trying to do and the imagination behind all the visuals and the way that it looked – Again, all of that stuff is A+. It was it was gorgeous, and you can tell that there was real production value here, but the story is so important, and that was the piece that ultimately did not connect for me. So it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. Those are my thoughts on 3,000 Years of Longing. If you've checked out this film, definitely hit us up and let us know what you think. Let's talk about our next film that we have to review this week, one of Channing Tatum's new movies that came out earlier this year, Dog. Hey! No, 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 no! No! You're just a demon! You're just a demon! It's expired, sir. Oh, come on, man. You know how many times I've been in and out of this gate with that? Excuse me? What's the odds on my sister? Step out of the vehicle, sir. You want me to step hey. out of the vehicle? I'll have a... He's with the Ranger Battalion. Ranger Battalion. I've been busting my ass to get my mind and my body back into a good place. I need to get back in the game, sir. You want to get back in the game? Prove it. Sergeant Rodriguez was a legend. Family funeral Sunday outside of Nogales. They want his dog at the funeral. You do this, and you're back in the game. She won't work with anyone. One minute she's good, the next minute she's sending three guys to the ER. What's up, dog? And you're gonna go on a little road trip. Easy. What are y'all so scared of? Smell it out, big time. <laughs> what is your deal, man? Maybe just take the crazy down. One notch. Hey! No, 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 no! No! You're just a demon. You're just a demon! 
Whatever happened to you, dog? It used to be 11. You're so good. How'd you make her get out of your hand? I just talked to her. See, she's just a noodle. She just needs so good. You don't do anything else psychotic on this trip? Maybe we can have some fun. Is that a deal? Shake? Lulu, <laughs> is that you? Good girl. Will you give hugs now? Really? A Lulu gets the best hug. You've never had a Lulu hug? Nah, we don't, we don't, we don't exactly hug. You tell me that Nuke was just as messed up as Louie. Had to work him every day for six months. When he stopped struggling, that's when I realized maybe I could stop struggling too. It's okay. It's just lightning, right? Oh, 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 look at that! She's never slept in a nice bed before. There ain't no shame in wanting a big comfy mattress. I was hoping you might have a room for me and my little girl. Is that a purple heart? Was she wounded? Uh. Yes, she she was. Thank you for your service. I've never seen this dog exhibit any aggressive behavior before. Never. She loves people. Oh my God, I can I can see. You're definitely not the girl I thought I'd be in the tub with, but I'll take what I can get at this point, I guess. Now, this movie is directed by Channing Tatum and Reed Carolyn, and it's also written by Reed Carolyn, and it's starring Channing Tatum, Ethan Suppley, Jane Adams, Kevin Nash, Kevin Nash, really? <laughs> Karenaka Kilcher, Emily Ramvair, and Emily Ramvair Lampman. So, um, again, Dog is a film that came out earlier this year, this past spring, starring Channing Tatum. It was one of two movies. He had come out probably about two or three weeks apart, I remember, because we saw The Lost City with him and Sandra mm -hmm. Bullock, but Dog came out within like a two-week time period, and Channing Tatum had taken a break from acting for quite a while. He hadn't done a movie in about five years until this one, and Ooh. so it was actually interesting to see that he came back to not only star in a pretty big blockbuster with Sandra Bullock in The Lost City, but he actually came back and did this other film that is a little bit smaller, but that he also directed within Dog. I didn't get a chance to check this one out, but this is something you saw. So what did you think about this brand new film? Yeah, man, I actually ended up watching this on the plane. I was going back to Kansas City this weekend. I was like, okay, what movies do they have? Dog was one of the only ones on there that I hadn't seen. I was like, okay, we're going to go ahead and watch Dog, man. And it's cute. It's cute. It's pretty much a it's a buddy comedy with the dog. Um, it's 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 about uh, uh, Channing Tatum used to be an army ranger, but it, in combat at some point he, he came under a brain injury. And so he's not allowed to be in the army right now. One of his buddies passes who was who was still active in the army and one of the, the dogs in which they used to go to, to to war with on missions with was left to him because it was his buddy's dog that died. And so he has to get this dog to the funeral. After the funeral, they're going to put the dog down. If he does this, if he does this thing, they'll let him back in the army. Pretty much is the synopsis of the movie. And so, man, again, it ends up being a, a, a very cute movie, man. The I don't know how it's like we're getting better at directing animals. I think it's like they've been doing a really good job of putting animals on screen. They've been killing it. I, I did some research and found out they used three different dogs for the dog that the dog's name is Lulu in the movie. That he's three different dogs for Lulu, and and every time I was like, man, they're doing <laughs> this dog is really good <laughs> at doing. Uh, uh, I don't know, just commands of whatever uh, uh, they they had going on. But overall, it's it's pretty formulaic, um, in, in which makes it okay. It's cute, but it's okay. Uh, you haven't you have it's not something you haven't seen before. But what I will say, it does take some cliches and make them slightly deeper in terms of because uh, this movie all in all is really about healing. 
and finding out what your purpose is after you feel like that's not your purpose anymore, right? Like just he's been decommissioned from the army for a little bit because of his injury and the dog lost his owner. So the dog can't be in the army anymore. And it's just, it's just a lot going on and in, in, in figuring out what, where your place is. And so there is a little bit of depth there, but um, again, it's, it's, it's nothing you've never seen before. It is fun. There's a little bit of some, a couple of things that are just absolutely ridiculous, but it will make you laugh. Um, and I'm not mad. I watched it, man. Again, it, it, it was a cool, it was a good airplane movie. I was like, okay, that was, I, I was, I was glad I watched that. Um, so yeah, it's just one of those movies that has enough heart to to like be entertaining, but maybe like after a while you you'll be like, eh, I I, I kind of remember that, kind of don't remember that kind of type movie, but in the moment it was it was cool, man. Despite what Christopher Nolan may think, some certain movies are really good for an airplane experience. You don't have to watch <laughs> every single thing in a big movie theater, and I think Dog might be the the prime example of that. Because if I was on an airplane, this would also probably be, be a movie that I would turn on. Oh, I haven't mm-hmm. seen this. Let me go ahead and check it out. It's also kind of short, 101 minutes, so decent amount of time to get it to get it finished within an airplane ride. But uh, you know, dogs and films, man, they 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 have a. a a curious history. I mean, I think uh, there have been some some great successes that we've seen where, you know, dogs and film have been really, really fun to have as a part of like a story. And I think mm-hmm. of uh, Turner and Hooch. That's like a, a nice oh, yeah. film, you know, with Tom Hanks. That's definitely like a, a cool little throwback. But then you have more sad examples like uh, John Wick where, you know, oh boy, if you've seen John Wick, you oh. know what happens to that dog. I Certainly. Am mm-hmm. <laughs> I am legend. That's another good one. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, now that I say this, the history is kind of sad. It's not a lot really of sads. Not really good fates for a lot of these dogs in these <laughs> movies. Uh, it's kind of rare where they actually come out on the other side of it. But I think it's always interesting to have like a man dog story because you know dog man's best friend is kind of yep. kind of writes itself right. Like so, I think that mm-hmm. kind of lends to that idea of it maybe being a little bit formulaic. But typically, these films are meant to be like family friendly films and you know meant to appeal to like a wider you know demographic at large and I, so i think you know t- telling a simple story w- with with you know a pet or a dog in that case is can be effective you know and it sounds like it was it was decent you know from that perspective also pg-13 so. which is oh really okay so yeah it had a, it had a couple things in there he was like oh okay all right all right <laughs> a little bit more risky okay okay mm-hmm. what kind of dog was it was it like a canine dog um, or no, was it a it- it was Rottweiler? a. Uh, it was based off. It's a German Shepherd adjacent. I forgot the name of it. It's a oh, okay. Belgian uh, Malinois or something oh, okay. like that. Mm-hmm. It's really different. close. It's really close to being a German Shepherd, but I think they have like barely different traits. So you can just think of it as a German Shepherd. It's also like big dog, little dog, because like as good as it gets. That that's like a, a little dog story, mm, like with yeah. Jack Nicholson, but like mm-hmm. you get a, get a bigger dog. So yeah, interesting. I definitely still have to check this out. But those are our thoughts on Channing Tatum's new film, Dog. If you've seen this, definitely hit us up. And let us know what you think. And with that being said, we are going to get to the other half of our show in which we are going to talk about Independent Film Studio A24. Now, we are doing this because recently A24 just celebrated their 10th anniversary on August 20th. They were founded in New York City back in 2012 on August 20th, and they were founded by Daniel Katz, David Finkel, and John Hodges. These were three buddies who had worked in the finance industry, had definitely rubbed their shoulders in the film industry as well, and they decided to get together and formulate a new independent film studio. And the way that they got the name is that they were actually over in Italy, and they were in a car, and they were driving by a highway that was named A24, and one of them had the bright idea like, oh, that's what we should call our company. Let's call it A24 because there's nothing pretentious about that naming your company after an Italian highway, but I think that they knew what they were going for. But of course, they were motiv- motivated to do this because they had saw that Hollywood had taken a different turn compared to what it was in previous decades, like the 80s and the 90s. They saw that things were definitely becoming much more 
standard by blockbusters. Um, that was definitely becoming the norm in terms of what people were viewing. And so I think that they wanted to create a company that was reminiscent of older independent film studios of the past, like Miramax or Fox Searchlight. Yeah. These studios that made huge, huge marks on the film industry with so many notable films that came out through their distribution methods. And so they started in 2012 and they began the first distribution of films in 2013. And then actually in 2016 with Moonlight, that was actually the first film that they produced. That was their first original production where they fully financed it and produced that film entirely and so since then they've produced a notable amount of their own films as well as continuing their distribution efforts so it's a bit of a breakdown where some films they'll acquire and distribute on their own and then other films will actually finance them and produce them themselves and so 2016 is really where that all got got started and so what we're going to do today is count down each of our top 10 A24 films of all time, because they have released more than 100 films since their inception in 2012. A lot of them have made notable marks on the film industry, especially within the independent film community. We've also seen quite a few of these together, I know. And A24 has been really, really important, I think, to film as a whole. But before we talk about A24 and before we get really into the meat of this conversation, I just want to start and ask you, what has A24 meant to you? How did you first really become aware of who they were and over the past 10 years if you as you've you know view more and more of their films on a year-to-year basis what have they meant to you and what do you think they've meant to the film industry as a whole what's crazy is i can't even remember the first time i I like understood this wasn't i was like oh i think i really get what's happening here with a24 i cannot remember just that clicking moment for me but i will say what they what it means to me man is there's just There's kind of an exhaustion, I think, you feel as a movie connoisseur. The the people that you and I are as cinephiles where, uh, you know, we talk about a lot of movies on here and we will give a review and say, man, it was formulaic or it did this (laughs) the same as this and it did this the same. And it it just gets, you know, tiring after a while. And, 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 And after so long, I think you 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 come across something like A24, finally, these group of people where you're like, okay, this movie was different. I've never seen anybody put anything out like this before. It's more art housey. You can tell the, some of the budgets aren't as high, but the story is so different and it was so good that, man, I'm like, man, I hope they put out more. And then they do. And that story was different than the one before. You know, like this is not a blockbuster again. <laughs> this is literally another, it's almost like anti-blockbuster film. And so I found myself latching on to A24 because of the artistry that they, they and the autonomy that they allow movie and filmmakers to have that traditional Hollywood doesn't give people, man. There's so many movies that we'll talk about today that I know Hollywood, either they wouldn't have touched it or it would have been a very hard for it to get it to, to, to in a place for us to go see it into a theater. It would have been one of those straight to... Uh, uh, maybe straight to VOD or streaming kind of type things where people care less about it. And so I love that A24 kind of put a lot of these these film and filmmakers on a pedestal to allow them to make the films that they want to make without saying, look, this is this is a this is an example. But look, this is the MCU. You have to do this. You know what I'm saying? Look, this is Fast and Furious. You have to do this. This has to be in your movie. A24 is like, y'all can do whatever the hell y'all want. As long as it's good, we're going to put it out. And I love that about the company, man. It really, I think it set a tone 
that 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 understood that there was a market out there for people like us who wants to see good movies that don't have the burden of having to 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 have the have the strings of puppetry that Hollywood has on on the rest of these movies, man. And so that's kind of what A twenty four has meant to me is kind of that gateway into into more films being their own. Um, because I, I always think too, like if I ever was to become a filmmaker what would that look like, right? And in, in my mind, I'm like, I want to make whatever the hell I want to make. I'm not I'm not trying to write a script or something. And they're like, nope, can't do that. A24 is like, no, of course you can do that. And so that's another one of the reasons I'm like, yeah, I'm, I, I, I mess with these people. Um, and, I, and I also love how uh, uh, really self-indulgent isn't the word, but they just understand themselves so well. Like they I think they get their market and they get the people that they appeal to, and, and they really just go with it, man. They have fun with it. So you can tell A24 just has fun compared to, like, a lot of these other companies that have so much pressure coming about them. A24 is like, of course we got a little pressure. We're still a company, and we distribute a lot of films, but we we also enjoy the work that we do. And so, um, yeah, man, I think they just set a, a different kind of standard when it came to these movies, and that's something I fell in love with. They've disrupted Hollywood in a real and viable way that, that we haven't seen in quite a while, I would say. Again, I compare them a lot to Miramax in the 90s when Miramax was this independent company that was giving chances to a lot of directors who wouldn't have otherwise gotten a chance. Like in the mm-hmm. 90s, we get directors like Quentin Tarantino and Steven mm-hmm. Soderbergh and PTA and Spike Jones. Like they were able yeah. to do these things in the 90s with smaller studios that a bigger studio just wouldn't have taken that gamble. And A24. I feel like they looked at that kind of that blueprint to see that there was a big gap that didn't that that wasn't being filled there and they they saw an opportunity and they took it and now we have so many projects that have come out of that studio that have these distinctive voices and styles from filmmakers that have made their mark and made their name with A24 and have gone on to do bigger and better things and some of them have stayed with A24 to make multiple films and that's also a really cool thing and I think also with just like the disruption mentality the fact that they were founded in New York City and not Hollywood is also like very key to their whole history and to be honest i think that's why i'm a little bit biased to a24 because when they were really coming into their own when moonlight came out that's when i moved here and and for more than six years i've seen so many of their movies here in new york city because they do a lot of first screenings and preview things and there's a you know a lot of a lot of stuff happening here and so i think that that's also just sort of helped really establish just my love for many of the projects that they do of course they've not all been perfect and they've put out a lot of stuff that isn't isn't all that great but by and large their track record is pretty well defined in terms of not only finding filmmakers and really making a name for them but also creating this really distinctive tone and style and voice that you won't get any get anywhere else in addition to that i think one of the things that they do better than almost anybody is that they know how to get people to go to the movies They know how to create these theater experiences, these Mm -hmm. theatrical experiences where they get people talking. They've really helped the word of mouth element of film going come back to the forefront because people typically go see an A24 movie. They'll go see an Uncut Uncut Gems or a Midsommar or Hereditary and people start talking about it like, yo, you have to see this shit like now because you've never seen anything like this before. And when you go see something like that in a movie theater, you never really know what you're going to get. But you just know that it's going to be something. It's going to be something to talk about, whether you like it or not. And I think that they've curated that experience to such an amazing degree over the past 10 years. And also what they've done with marketing, they've really changed the way on how to market movies. Because what they used to do 
they really leaned on the internet. They leaned on meme culture and videos and gifts mm-hmm. and things of that nature. And now they've graduated to a new level to where they can go with more non-traditional marketing routes to get publicity for their movies because, let's face it, they don't have $50 million or $75 million to spend on really expensive marketing campaigns. They're not necessarily going to do partnerships with I don't know, serial companies or Nissan or Audi, you know, they have to do stuff that's mm-hmm. really, really creative. They have to create this online web presence that's going to get them hot. They have to put out the best swag and merchandise that you're going to see. They have to curate a really, a really well-defined online experience, I think, by non-traditional means that's also helped with the conversation around their movies and their products because you might have seen something from an A24 movie and not even know it's from an A24 movie. You just have seen it over and over because like a meme was created or something like that. And so they've also perfected that whole method as well. And so they've done so many different things from both the commercial and critical level that have been so successful and so different than everything else that we see. And I know when I go to the movies, whether or not I actually like the movie at the end of the day is almost kind of irrelevant now, which is crazy because... We don't really rally behind distribution companies or film studios. We don't really go say like, oh, yeah, I'm a fan of Sony Pictures. You don't ever say that. (laughs) Like we more so say we're fans of brands. You know, I'm a fan of Star Wars and I'm a fan of Marvel, but you don't ever Mm -hmm. say something like that. Right. And so to sit here and say like, oh, no, I'm actively a fan of A24 and what Mm -hmm. they do is kind of crazy in and of itself. That that's a real thing that they've been able to create that type of experience for us as film goers. And they've represented some of the most important theatrical experiences I've had in the past 10 years. So many films that they put out that I go to the movie theater, I pay money to see, just reinforces the idea of investment, that I'm invested into them and what they put out, and I think so many people are as well. And even if you don't go see their stuff in theaters, when it makes a splash on streaming, it also has maybe as big of an effect there as well. I remember like Uncut Gems had a huge online conversation Mm -hmm. when it made it to Netflix because a lot of people didn't see it in theaters. And so they've been able to sustain that over time as well. And so overall, I love what they do. Again, everything isn't a hit. They put out some bad films too, some stuff I just flat out don't like. Mm -hmm. But the way that they've been able to curate their own image, their own tone, their own style over the course of a decade has been really, really impressive to see. So I'm just very much invested in what they what they do for the future. Before we get to our top 10 lists, before we actually break this down, which I got to say, y'all, this was really, really difficult to put it's... together a top 10. <laughs> there are so many bangers that they've put out. This was, this was really hard, and so I'm kind of hurt <laughs> by some things that didn't make my list, but Same. we'll get to that. Um, I think in order to, to, to you know, sort of pay tribute to other films that might not have made it into either of our top 10 lists, or maybe they did, I don't know. We want to give out some awards. We want to do like a superlative style section for A24 because, because they are so distinctive and, and have their own style and tone. There are some things that are very much kind of unique to the A24 experience in, in a lot of ways. And so we put together some categories that we're just going to quickly run through and, and, and sort of name off who we think won the award. Um, so let's go ahead and get to it, man. Let's first start off with the best reoccurring director. Again, as I said, mm-hmm. A24 is known for creating homegrown talent and also keeping them around. They've established a lot of really meaningful relationships over the, over the years. So a lot of directors have come and gone and have made multiple movies for A24, sometimes two, three, maybe even four movies for them. So um, there's definitely a lot of examples here. Who would you have as the best reoccurring director for A24? Yeah, um, I think I think it for, for, for me... Just because the the man is two for two, man. You don't even have to be <laughs> reoccurring more than that <laughs> right now. But uh, it, it has to be Ari Aster, man. He just created two wild ass movies <laughs> that are, of course, similar in in tone, but different in the way. He just they're very different movies still at the end of the day, and they're both really good, man. He made he made a, a movie that was a horror film that was usually dark lit 
and then he made one of his complete opposite. It's a horror film in the daytime. I think it's nuts. But it, but after looking through kind of the list and, and how I feel about the, the reoccurring uh, directors that do exist, I think I think he's there, man. I do have kind of like a a, a, a runner up just because of the things going on. But I, I, I'll speak to it after you give uh, who you think won the award for you. I was really close to picking Ari Aster here because I, I don't disagree. Hereditary and Midsommar as like a back-to-back experience with released within a year of each other at that is nuts and wild. And we actually learned because we went to go see him speak in person here at Lincoln Center a few years ago that he actually wrote Midsommar first. Mm-hmm. Hereditary came after the fact. And so Midsommar was already done and ready to go. But I picked the Safdie brothers because what they did with both Good Time and Uncut Gems are mm-hmm. just two really special viewing experiences for me because of the unexpected nature of both of them and just how wild they ultimately ended. Like both both endings to to those films are crazy. Like they're wild and I just couldn't have foresaw that coming. But Ari Aster was right there. There's also like a few other examples. Sean Baker's directed a couple of films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Robert Eggers, of course, has directed that's, a couple of films. That's my runner up. He was the runner up for you. Okay, yeah. I mean I mean Robert Eggers also two for two with A twenty four specifically. Hey, if Northman was A twenty four, I'd be having a different conversation. <laughs> he would be the pick. He would have to be the pick because three for three would be nuts. And yeah. to do like the witch, the lighthouse, and then the Northman. I mean, that's just it's a streak for himself, of course. But for A twenty four, yeah, they missed out on that third one. He wanted to go go a little bit bigger than they could have mm-hmm. probably afforded at that time. But yeah, I mean, those those three, and I, you know, again, I would include Sean Baker on that list. Like some really really notable names here um, for for people that have worked with them multiple times. Let's talk about best first time director. Which I gotta say, I actually picked Ari Aster for this one. Because of how impressive Hereditary was. That was actually his first his first movie that he did for the studio. And yeah. it's really crazy in hindsight to know it is. this was your first movie. And it's it's probably a horror masterpiece. I think by a lot of people's standards at this point, much even like even to the point that like Martin Scorsese said so. Martin Scorsese has praised Hereditary for just how wild and inventive and just a unique different viewing experience it really is something that hasn't really been communicated on screen in many different respects and so i actually picked him for this for this category which is you know the fact that he can fit into either of these is also kind of wild but i picked him as best first time director just because of how impressive hereditary was i don't know if there's been a more impressive directorial debut out of somebody in in in, in some years at this point i would have to really think about that but he mm-hmm. he he did he did some damn fine work on that movie first time out man so they have some crazy first-time directors. And these, I, I still have these three kind of tied. Some of you are trying to figure out right now. I literally wrote down three movies <laughs> with three really good directorial debuts. But you I can think cheat. I'm a, it's your list, so it's whatever, you know? You can hey, pick all three if you need to. I might have to. Okay, I'm going to go through all three, man, just because I, I have to talk about it. The first one is Jonah Hill from mid-90s. I think, like, man, that's your first movie? <laughs> Like, good job, Jonah Hill. Like, damn. Like, okay. Love mid-90s. Going crazy. My second one is Bo Burnham for eighth grade. I I mean. <sighs> wow. That was a movie experience that I did not expect. Like, you go in and you see the trailer, and it's like, okay, this movie's going to be okay. And then I'm, by the end of it, I was just speechless. Like, and it's, knowing who Burr Burnham is versus what the movie is is just two completely different things and i think he he just had an accomplishment there man of, of like in terms of what you expected versus what you got my third one we just talked about is robert eggers i think the Bavich, as i like to call it <laughs> the witch is crazy man i think there's so many things you have to do and get right and for that to be your first movie the man was working with crazy ass goats he was working with black Phillip, baby black icon Phillip. 
he was working with uh, natural lighting, where a lot of it is candles. You know how hard that is? Like, the man was lighting stuff with candles. It's insane when you watch it, and you're just like, why does this look so good? It doesn't make any sense. Um, but the way that movie turned out, man, I think it's just very impressive. I think those are just th- those are three big names you think about. It's like, damn. Um, and, and, and I think they'll continue to be great. But I had to I had to speak to all three because I think they're all d- so good in, in, in different ways. Of course, Ari Aster, too. Uh, I literally only didn't pick him because I picked him for best recurring director. <laughs> but yeah, you, you you spoke to that. The man, the man is one of the greatest man. So crazy. And all of those movies are so different from each other as well. Like eighth grade versus the witch. I mean, come on, what are we talking about here? Just like the diverse <laughs> scale that just, you know, again, it represents what a 24 is about. They've released every type of movie under the sun. They've done horror. They've done psychological thrillers. They've done dramas. Mm-hmm. They've done documentaries. They've done coming of age stories. They've done romances. They've done international films. Like they've done so many things. And so I think when you get all these first time directors coming in up to bat, like, and they've never like done something at this level before mm-hmm. and then knock it out of the park. It's kind of crazy. So I, I think all of those are great picks. Um, let's go to our next award. This award, is the best quote i didn't know this was an a24 movie movie award <laughs> um and so this is just to reflect a movie that we might have saw and you yep. didn't really process and understand like oh a24 made this i didn't even know that you might you might not have realized it until like the end credits roll and you see that logo pop up on the screen or maybe even popping it in for the first time and then you see the a24 logo pop up and you didn't realize it um my pick here was actually a most violent year which came out in 2014 i believe Mm. um it's a movie starring oscar isaac and jessica chastain who were also um scene partners in scenes from a marriage last year on hbo but i saw this movie quite a while ago Hadn't realized it was an A24 movie. One, because it doesn't necessarily feel like anything else that they do. It feels like a more traditional movie. Mm-hmm. But it's a thriller that's set in New York City during the winter of 1981. Oscar Isaac is playing a uh, a gangster. Basically, he's the owner of a small heating co- oil company. Um, and he's basically stressed by like the competitiveness in the oil trade industry. Um, and he's having to secure like loans to expand his business empire but it's like a crime thriller you know set in new york city in the 80s and uh him and jessica chastain are playing husband and wife here again this is a really really good movie i would definitely encourage people to see it it's definitely a little bit more quiet i'm a little bit more methodical in its pace it's not slow but it definitely takes its time to sort of build up to to what the what the story is ultimately about but i think it pays off in a really meaningful way but i just didn't realize this was an a24 movie i had no idea until i had turned it on i just like popped it in one day and i was watching it and i'm like oh yeah oscar isaac jessica chastain really like both of them and then that logo pops up and you're like wait a second this doesn't <laughs> this doesn't feel like other stuff you've been putting out this is this doesn't feel like the elevated horror or the the more documentary style movies that you've been making lately like this is just kind of like a straight up crime thriller just really traditional in that wow. respect but ultimately ended up in being a, a really good movie man my pick is it's just one of these i i just don't think i knew what a24 was at the time maybe or what happened was i'm pretty sure I mean, we spend, I'm sure, a month amount of time on the internet just looking at stuff. I'm pretty sure I was just looking up A24 films. It was like, there's no way this is an A24 film. My movie is Green Room. Um, and first of all, that movie is nuts. If you haven't it's seen crazy Green Room, movie. go see Green Room. Go watch it right now. <laughs> the movie, it's so good, but it's so like, I can't believe what I'm watching with my eyes kind of type movie. Um, Man, I I actually feel like I had a movie night for this movie. That was a big thing for me in college. I feel like we all sat down and watched this. But it wasn't. Oh my till, god! I know that's the kind of movie <laughs> night guy I am. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it, it wasn't a way after. Again, I figured out this was a twenty four. But this movie, y'all, is about pretty much as a young punk rock band. It, they get a gig, but what they don't know is they get a gig in 
first of all, they're in Oregon, which is wild. But it's a roadhouse for a bunch of white supremacists. And they kind of get like trapped <laughs> in like this bar roadhouse place with these white supremacists. Um, the whole cast is white themselves, but they're still very much like millennial teenagers. They don't agree with everything they agree with. It's just crazy um, um, kind of movie making here, man. So so that's my pick. Uh, that's still wild. That freaking... Patrick Stewart's in it. <laughs> yeah, so random, right? Like mm-hmm. to have him in here and he's what? Yeah, he's, like who's in this movie? Okay, where did that come from? Uh, but yeah, man, really good movie. That was my pick. Definitely, y'all. Yeah, it's crazy. That's another crazy experience. You don't see where it's going, and then ultimately, when you understand like what's happening here, it's it's really wild. Definitely encourage to people to see that as well. Um, our next award is the most iconic visual or physical item from a movie. Uh, I picked. This is funny because I see it all the time on like social media and I even like posted myself. I picked the Furby chain from Uncut Gems. Uh, <laughs> that shit is so fucking boss to me. Like that Furby chain, the first time you see it in that movie and Adam Sandler holds it up yeah. and he's like talking to Kevin Garnett. It's like, who would ever wear that gaudy shit? Like nobody's putting that around their neck. But I feel like it's taken on like a life of its own, that damn Furby chain. So I had to I had to pick that one. Yeah, bro. Mine is very much. I have a couple. Um, um, I have a second and third spot, but number one, just the visual of the May Queen, man. The I think everyone knows the May Queen from Midsummer. If you haven't even seen the movie, everybody just I don't know. People started making memes out of it, and all it was just really crazy uh, when when it first came out. My second and third spot is the the Beach of Moonlight. I think it's very iconic. I think people mm-hmm. after seeing it win and seeing like I'm pretty sure there's somebody you could show somebody the visual when uh, he's holding him in his arms and it's like. Uh, in the water and i think people would be like oh that's moonlight i think people can point that out and uh the other the other one is literally from uncut gems but it's the meme that says this is how i win (laughs) (laughs) one of my favorite memes yeah i I think that's pretty iconic too so those are kind of my picks that may queen look has turned into like a halloween costume too like people have actually dressed up as a may queen like it's really taken on a life of its own and then with with moonlight and that beach sequence like i've seen that turn into so many paintings like so many artists have like painted mm-hmm. that and it's gorgeous because of the colors like the purples and the blues that they put into it so yeah definitely great stuff next award best swagger merch um for this one i it was it was two picks i had trouble picking i'll just go ahead and name both because i thought that they had like really incredible merch unfortunately mm-hmm. i did not get anything like it sold out so fast the yeah. green knight had some crazy merch green knight merch was ridiculous like the t-shirts that they had they had like this really cool long sleeve t-shirt that was like a beige color with this really old school acrylic design i really wanted that didn't get it and then also midsommar had some really really nice stuff too midsommar had some really iconic imagery for merchandise a lot of that may queen stuff was put on it the 4k copy that they released Mm -hmm. is very reminiscent of a lot of things that come from the movie a lot of those designs those really tribalistic demonic just let's say it cult-like designs that they had in the movie were a part of like the 4k physical release so uh, those two in particular had some really really impressive merchandise when they rolled out yeah i actually have um i do have miss summer as one just for that physical fork that blu-ray they have man there's so much in there like you said it's remnant of the art <laughs> of that culture is just i think it's a really crazy release just the way it's also like bigger than all the other <laughs> blu-rays um which is crazy actually actually a really similar one with uh last black man in san francisco too it's like the same same height and stuff but my other pick um there was a shirt i really liked and it was from saint mod <laughs> and it sold out so fast i saw and, that shirt and, yes and the movie the movie may not be like perfect or anything but that shirt is so fire to me i'm so like, good it's so good and i was like damn it why does that have to be 
one of the things um, that sell out. I will uh, add a other one more little note. The stuff they've been coming out with for X is kind of nice. I'm hoping like Pearl kind of follows up with something that's just like, I don't know. Give me something for 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 Pearl, man. But yeah, those are my picks. Bro, have you seen those sweatpants for X? The red sweatpants? Yes. That, that sold out and I was pissed. I'm like, I yep. could never get any of the good shit because those sweatpants, I'm hoping they do like another line of sweats for like you said for Pearl when that comes out in a couple months here. So yeah, they, they they got a lot of great stuff. But if you don't know, like if you don't hop on it, it'll be gone. Sometimes they do re-releases for stuff, but it's not that often. So you definitely got to hop on it. Um, Our next award is the, wait, isn't this supposed to be a horror movie award? <laughs> um, so we, we, we chose this as a, as a category because... We just got to be frank. A lot of times they come out with many, many horror movies. They, they've done it a lot over the years. And if you go see them, specifically in a movie theater, you might walk out feeling like, hmm, that didn't really feel like a horror movie. It wasn't all that scary. <laughs> there weren't really any jump scares. It doesn't feel traditional. It might be more of a psychological horror or maybe a little bit more of a meditative horror, but it's not just like a classic horror movie. What did you pick for this one? I got two picks. I think they're very obvious because we talked about these movies and seen them together. My two picks are Lamb and Men. Those are my two picks. Those are just two movies that I I don't know. Actually, I don't know what I thought going in, but I just knew I just knew they were going to be horror movies. And that is not what I got out of either one. Um they're both talking about other things. Uh I don't hate either one. Um but they're just yeah, just not what I thought they were going to be. So those are my picks. Yeah, trust me. Uh, a lot of people said I don't know after they saw both of those movies. Um, I had only picked Lamb. I mean, Men is definitely in that category, but I picked Lamb because it, it feels like a pretty egregious example of marketing <laughs> that just does not match up with what you see. Because At all. <laughs> I remember ordering some sort of swag from A24. And they send, if you don't know, when you order something from A24, they always send like a postcard for an upcoming movie that comes out. Mm -hmm. And on the postcard, it was for Lamb. And it said something to the degree of like the next the next horror movie from A24 or something like that. It, it had some sort of like tagline like that. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm really excited for Lamb. It looks really ethereal and crazy and you don't understand what's happening, but there's like an animalistic aspect to it. And then we saw that movie and man, <laughs> I mean, just sat there waiting and waiting and waiting All for right. something crazy to happen. And it never really did. There's one crazy thing that happens at the end of the movie. It's like, Oh, now we're getting it going, and then the credits roll. So it was it was a pretty disappointing experience, unfortunately. We talked about it last year. You can go check out that review. Our next award is the best use of aspect ratios. A lot of mm -hmm. A24 movies typically use non-traditional aspect ratios. Most people are accustomed to the widescreen aspect ratio, 16 by 9, if I'm not mistaken. But a lot of A24 films use more of a letterbox type of style frame. They'll use like something that's more old school where the black bars are on the side of the screen. They're actually vertical instead of horizontal. They have a lot of examples like this. Um, what did you pick for this category? Man, so um, I really think I really like the lighthouse for this man. Um, my my issue again, I've, I've talked about it on the podcast. My issue with the lighthouse has nothing to do with the visuals <laughs> or or the acting of this film. Um, and I think it just works for 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 again how gorgeous that film really is, man. And so I'm I'm going with the lighthouse. Got you. For me, I picked a ghost story, um, which came mm, out in. Yes. 2015 i can't remember exactly but it's david lowry's film the film that he did um two movies before the green knight and the ghost story if you if you don't know what it's about it's about a man he becomes a ghost he's covered in a white sheet so he looks like michael myers from the first halloween movie <laughs> um but he remains in the house that was shared by his wife and this movie entirely is presented in the one three three aspect ratio but it has rounded corners and it and it, and it mm. simulates kind of like 
the edges of an exposed negative photo that you would see. And it was just really, really poignant, I think, as a choice to make that the aspect ratio for this movie, for the entire movie, because it feels like a character that's trapped in a box, both literally and like figuratively, because literally the ghost is trapped in the house, but also figuratively, if, as you're watching it, like the frame does not expand beyond that that aspect ratio. Um, and it also like evokes the feelings of an old photograph or, or a slide projector or a slideshow, something of that effect. So nostalgic it feels very nostalgic and of the past and a lot of the movie is about that it's it's a really sad story about this man who's reminiscing about the experience he had with his wife in the past and it also stars Rooney Mara who was great in the movie as well this is a really kind of slept on film from A24 that I really really enjoy and David Lowry I think he's also he's another reoccurring director we forgot to mention but he's done a couple for A24 this one a ghost story I think it's definitely a film that people should check out if they've not if they've not seen it um the next award is the movie in most need of a YouTube explainer video so a24 puts out a lot of movies that have deep, deep subtext to them. They have mm -hmm. deep meanings and allegories and all these things that you can really pick apart, probably even more so than the Easter egg videos that you find in a Marvel film. For me, I picked Enemy, which is a movie that Denis Villeneuve did back in 2013, I believe, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal is playing a dual role here. He's playing two versions of himself. It's two men who are physically identical, but they're very different in personality. And the reason that I picked this one is because for most of the movie, it's really, really difficult to tell who's who at times because you're following both of them, but the way that it's told and the way that it's edited, it's really kind of confusing at, at different points in times at who's who, and then it becomes a little bit more clear as the film goes on because I think, if I remember correctly, I've only seen it two times, they trade places at one point, so that makes it even more challenging to, to know who you're following, mm -hmm. but I don't want to spoil it, but there is a scene at the end of this movie that is... It's so disconnected from everything else you saw <laughs> for the previous 90 minutes. Like, it's just one scene. It's literally the very last shot of the movie. I'll just say that Jake Gyllenhaal walks into an apartment. He looks into a room, and there is something in the room that you just would not have anticipated. It's actually quite frightening, like, because mm. you don't expect it at all, because there was no indication that this was going to happen, and it left me so utterly confused at what it meant and what the whole purpose and meaning of this movie is. I think Denis Villeneuve is like the best director of the past decade, but this one That's in particular, it left my head scratching. So I definitely had to watch a YouTube video after seeing it. I've never actually never seen that movie, and I, you know, Denis, Denis Villeneuve—that's my boy. That's probably one of the few I haven't seen. So I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to go find that um, ASAP. But that is hilarious. That is a Denis Villeneuve movie because I wouldn't expect that. Although I'm pretty sure some people had to YouTube Arrival. I'm pretty sure they did. Or For oh yes, I, yeah. I had to after seeing yeah. Arrival because mm -hmm. yeah, the ending of that is a little ambiguous too. You don't really. It's not that concrete on the surface. Yeah, I think he's, yeah, he's, he's, he, he can be good at some of that stuff, man. Um, my YouTube Explainer video is just, is, is the lighthouse, man. I <laughs> walked <laughs> there so I love that. damn confused. Because <laughs> we walked out of that theater so. We were in shambles. <laughs> like, what we just see? Like, what was that? What was what was trying to be said? Um, this is even funnier because I got to say it's in my top 10. So it's going to be even funnier when we talk about <laughs> it in this conversation. But yeah, yeah, for sure, man. It's just one of those where and when you even when you watch the YouTube explainer video, you're like, what? That's what was happening. And it still like technically doesn't click exactly when you're watching the, the YouTube explainer. So it's just it's a very uh, for me, uh, uh, it's a very just just complicated idea. 
I think to to get across. But I'm sure if you if you can get across it again, I know you love that film. So if people, I'm sure if you get across it. You're like, yes, this is this is a B. So it's just man, a hurdle I have to get over. I'm watch a couple more YouTube videos, watch it one more time, see what happens. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is it is some 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 deep stuff going on in the lighthouse. I mean, deep stuff and some not so deep stuff too. Willem Dafoe is like farting all over the place in a lot <laughs> of that movie, so he's just doing some real childish stuff too. So it's it's a crazy movie to experience for sure. And um, we just got two more here. Uh, the next award is the most misleading marketing campaign. So this is kind this can kind of be related to the the other award. Wait, is isn't this supposed yeah. to be a horror movie? But uh, I think there's some other examples that are that are useful here too. Um, for most misleading marketing campaign, I actually chose The Green Knight here because The Green Knight mm. was something I was very much looking forward to and. I left disappointed by that because I remember the trailer came out pretty early. This movie ultimately ended up being delayed by like over a year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that first trailer made this feel like a real Arthurian adventure, like a real swords and sandals type of movie that would have a lot of adventure and a lot of action to it and when you see the movie it's not that um for me it was kind of a mess and it it chugs along at a very slow pace and a lot of things happen this could also have a youtube explainer video that would that would try to break some of the symbolism down because it's not all that clear but it is based on an arthurian tale uh sir gowan um and and that whole that whole story but it's expanded here it's it's definitely um you know given a lot more meat here in in terms of what the movie is because it's almost two and a half hours but i know david Lowry, who also directed a ghost story I just talked about, he mentioned that in the midst of the pandemic, because he had all this extra time and it was being delayed, he re-edited the movie in a different way. I think the way he initially edited it might have been more of a traditional film, like a more traditional, Mm -hmm. like, Arthurian action film, but he did something that was a little bit more uh, meditative and methodical and symbolistic of, of things that he was trying to get across in the film. It... It looks amazing. It is a beautifully shot and rendered film, but the story and just the pacing of it just didn't work for me. So mm-hmm. the marketing also didn't match up with that because I felt like it was going to be this epic, this really epic adventure. And, and it just ultimately didn't feel like that. So my pick is actually it comes at night. I just That's remember a good when I seen the trailer, I was like, OK, this is going to be like a normal kind of zombie-esque movie. And you actually watch it. And it's just, it's so much more layered than that. And there's so much more happening in the film than you originally expected um, to where, man, I'm telling, like you watch the movie or watch the trailer, watch the movie, go watch the trailer again. It's just a completely different experience when you watch the trailer. You're like, damn, they really didn't show anything. And I think that's one thing that A24, I think, may do better than some of the other things we were talking. We were watching a, a movie, uh, we went to go see Beast, there was a trailer showing. And we're like, we just watched the whole goddamn movie. Like, it's like a three-minute <laughs> thing, you know what I'm saying? And so I, I think it comes at night. It was a normal time of, like, two minutes. But they didn't show you anything in that trailer after you watched the movie. You watched the movie, like, damn, they didn't show any of this. <laughs> like, where the hell was all this? And so, uh, yeah, that was my pick, man. I think just, it's, it was just very different than, than expected. Yeah, it comes at night definitely is up there for sure. It's something that you just walk out experiencing something different than what the trailers kind of showed you that that's another i think example of something that feels more traditional like you think you're going to get a traditional horror movie but it is more layered than that like you said um and our last award that we're going to give out before we get to our top 10 the movie with the best vibes and aesthetics and so barry jenkins notable director of moonlight had once said about a24 that they are the kind of company where they say 
yeah, they don't need to know what it's about. They just need to know how it feels. And I think a lot of their movies reflect that, that they make you feel something more so than give you the answers of what exactly the story might be about. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, some people are, I think, more successful in terms of achieving a style and a sensibility and a vibe than they are maybe at communicating a story or captivating an audience's attention with character. Um, sometimes vibes can be enough, you know, and I think a vibe movie is totally acceptable in certain cases. Um, so for me, in this one, I pick mid-90s. Mid-90s mm. is definitely, I think, the perfect example of a vibe movie where yeah. not a ton happens, but it feels like an era. It feels like a specific moment in time. It feels like childhood and youthfulness for me growing up in that in that particular time period mid 90s you see so many things that are reminiscent of that time whether it's old video game systems like a nintendo 64 you see posters mm -hmm. on the wall it's a set in california they're skateboarding just like so many different things that call back to that specific era and even the music as well you know there's like a lot of music included from like the far side and other other hip-hop groups of the of the 90s um it, it's definitely the definition of a vibe movie for me where there is a story there that it absolutely is about something, but ultimately I go to it for how it makes me feel, how it, how it, how it transports, mm -hmm. transports me back to a particular era that we're currently not living in. So that's my pick for this one. So uh, I, I think by what people would expect me to pick is Moonlight, but I'm not doing that because I think I think Barry Jenkins shot that just crazy, man. I think that movie is just so beautiful and does things with with uh, uh, the camera that we haven't seen. I mean, people were like taking a serious story and like breaking forth walls in that movie. And I don't know, it just shot very different, but I'm not going with that, man. I'm actually going to go with Ex Machina here. Um, and it's just so beautiful, man. I, w I think I went more with aesthetic than I did vibes here. Because <laughs> it's just one of those that every, every time... There's, I mean, they're in the middle of a forest. The reds that they use are just really beautiful, but you can still see the people. Uh, every time you see a shot, it's also very isolated. So every time you see a shot, there's only two people in the frame at the at one time. If not, maybe three at some point in time. You know what I mean? And so there's a, there's a lot of greens and there's a lot. Of, it's just a very beautiful movie, man, because it's like nature and technology combined. And a lot of like people try to do that, but they don't take the time to make it look as beautiful, I think, as Ex Machina does. Um, and so in terms of aesthetic, man, I'm giving it to Ex Machina because I love the contrasting themes there, too, of this like big technological thing in this beautiful forest that's so natural versus something that's man-made in the inside. And so, yeah, man, I, I think that movie is still nuts <laughs> to this day. So definitely Ex Machina. It's it's kind of set the blueprint for I think a lot of movies that we even see now. You know, just the way mm -hmm. that they are shot and just like how Swan Song, we, Swan well, Song is very much like yep. yeah, mm -hmm. um, Spiderhead is like that. Like I think yep. we live in a time where films are starting to feel like an Apple product. You know, which is kind of funny to say, <laughs> but like Ex Machina really kind of started that. Like you say, mm -hmm. the juxtaposition of like the technological world on the inside, the insular nature of that versus this natural world that exists on the outside, you know, and just like how that looks and in, in, in visually illustrated on, on screen. Definitely one of their more beautiful, beautiful films. Let's go ahead and get into our top 10. The moment is here. We got to count down what we think are the best A24 movies of all time. And I'll go ahead and start off here. And again, this was really, really difficult. Um, there's definitely some movies that didn't make my list that would make my list under pretty much any other circumstance if they weren't compared to just so many great films. But uh, at 10, I'm starting off with The Tragedy of Macbeth, um, which Ooh. just came out just recently mm -hmm. this past December. Um, of course, directed by Joel Cohen. It's it's adapting the tale of Macbeth. Um, and it's doing so in a very different fashion than I think any Macbeth story is created and, and told visually 
solely because of what's being done here. It, it's 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 kind of a dream for me as seeing like two of the world's finest actors in Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, also supported mm-hmm. by a really, really talented cast, being led up by one of my favorite filmmakers, Joel Cohen, one half of the Cohen brothers, yeah, implementing the A24 style that non-traditional aspect ratio, black and white, the way that it's shot, the production design, it very much feels like it's set on a stage, even though it's supposed to be taking place in the real world. I think it's a true achievement, and I've actually watched it a few times, which I didn't peg and think that I would do because it is told in that more traditional, older English style of what those Shakespearean stories were written in. Mm -hmm. And you just... You know, for us, like watching that, it's not the easiest to understand. It's not the easiest to comprehend. Of course, Macbeth has been told hundreds of times. And so you can you can know what the story is about if you just read, obviously. Right. And and they don't stray far away from that here. But just the way that it looks and the way that it's shot and just the acting performances here, just really, really excellent stuff. And I think it kind of represents the highest degree of filmmaking to by today's standards when you get one of the world's best and most achieved directors, literally one of the greatest actors and one of the greatest actresses of our time and put them all together for a movie done by an independent film studio who has a really prestigious track record. It was a dream scenario and I think it paid off beautifully. Man, that's, that's, well, yeah, that's a really good pick, man. I think it's just, it's, I think for me, it's one of those movies that it's gonna, it's gonna have to take me uh, just lo- It's so new <laughs> that it has to take a little longer to possibly creep up into my top ten. But I love everything about it that you just said, um, and it's so accurate for me too, man. That man, that it's also what makes this list so hard. It's like, damn, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you're gonna be saying stuff like, damn, should that have been in my list? I don't know. Like this is, this is really, 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 really hard. Um, so my tenth spot, I have eighth grade, man. Um, was kind of just talking about it, but I just, ne- I just can't forget seeing this in theaters just my experience of going to see this because i i remember at the time i went to go see it not because of really promotions or anything i was just like it's a 24 movie <laughs> i'm gonna go see eighth grade and 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 i knew that something crazy was just gonna happen in this movie but it's so uh uh one i like how everything you know about bo, bo burnham you have to throw in the trash when you go watch this movie it's like this is not that guy at all this is somebody who understands storytelling at the end of the day and in, in, in the ways in which to also give social commentary by that way of storytelling um but it's so it's it's a very sweet movie though too i love how connected i think i feel to eighth grade in terms of everyone was in eighth grade at some point and so some of the things that the main character goes through you're like well di- yeah that makes sense that she would go through that but there's a lot of darkness in it too that i did not expect you know what i mean that does speak on the ways in which how terrible society is and could take a, uh, a, a advantage you know of people this age you know what i mean and so it was it, yeah it was just one of those those things i always i will never forget just when i first seen it um and and i think it's a it's it's somewhat a beautiful observation man of just a moment in life um i want to watch it again soon just because it's been a while to see if i have that same feeling but right now i was like man a grade is was 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 still a hitter and so this that's why it makes my top 10 yeah, eighth grade is one of those ones that did not make my top ten. I was really hurt by that because I love that movie. I think it's so so great and it's so it's just so resonant. You know, I think if anybody mm-hmm. have gone through some of those similar experiences that she went through in that movie, uh, you can definitely feel for her. My number nine is Lady Bird, which is you know somewhat similar to Eighth Grade. I think it actually kind of set the blueprint for Eighth Grade a little bit ahead of it because um, this movie is starring Saoirse Ronan. It's directed by Greta Gerwig. Hugely, hugely talented cast that's a part of this i mean there's so many people that are just superstars now that showed up in lady bird that they were kind of introduced in that movie 
at least to the mainstream culture, they had done stuff before, but you think about Timothy Chalamet and Beanie Feldstein, like they kind of got really, they, they really took off with Lady Bird. And mm-hmm. for me, this is a coming of age story that is just full of spirit. It's about the turmoil of adolescence and, and breaking away from your family and wanting to move away. Sorcerer Ronan's character is on the verge of going to college and she wants to leave home and she wants to go to New York City to attend Barnard and, and, and move away from her family. And her and her mother are just so at odds because of that decision. And man, I think, again, if you've ever been through that experience of like having to leave home and make a really tough decision like that, it, it will certainly hit you in, in a place that is often indescribable because a lot of people might not necessarily be re- be able to relate to that. But Lady Bird was really a triumph when it came out. I was just so impressed by it. And Greta Gerwig has, you know, really established herself as as a really phenomenal filmmaker, um, a, a new modern filmmaker that's doing just really great stuff. She's worked with Sorsha a couple of times now. And just overall, Lady Bird is one of those ones for me that, that I always go back to. It's always a joy to watch. It's funny. It's very emotional. Again, mm-hmm. it has a lot of spirit and the cast overall just rounds it out in a really, really, really great way. Yeah, we have the same nice spot, man. I mean, Lady Bird was just... It was just really different when it came out, man, because I think we we got so used to the traditional coming of age film <laughs> that when this movie came around, you're like, man, I mean, this is like, what is this story? Uh, it was just such a different story. But also, like you said, it was funny. And I think that really helped, too, because she, she's such a rebellious teen in a lot of different ways. And it, it really makes uh, uh, the movie pop. It, it also, I mean, even thinking about it in hindsight from where we are now, where Greta Gerwig is now, where Sorcerer Rona is, Ronan is now, it's like, Lady Bird did this. Y'all know that, right? <laughs> and it's like, it has to be in those conversations. It, like, it's in the conversation now, but top 10 A24 film, man, it really, it, it really did so many cool and different things that, uh, uh, again, allowed it to stick with me for so long. This is one of the ones that's also easy for me uh, to repeat. You know, there's some A24 films that you're just like, okay, I can't watch that right now. I can't watch that right now. But Lady Bird is like an easy pop-in. It's become comfortable, I think, in that way where it's like, uh, of course I'd watch that again. Um, I've watched it with different people. <laughs> you know what I mean? I've watched it with my mom. And it was like, yeah, this is this this movie's dope because it's also versatile. Um, and I love that about it, man. So it also made my nice spot. Yeah, it's definitely a story for everybody. I believe when it came out, too, because of just like the high critical reception it got, I think it was like the the most reviewed movie ever that remained at 100%. It broke the record of Toy Story 2. For a long time, Toy Story 2 had the most reviews mm-hmm. while retaining a 100% rating, and then Lady Bird broke that record. And it deserved to because... I think it's such a resonant story that everybody can relate to and can feel something about. Like you say, you can watch it with so many different people and everybody will walk away feeling something different from it. Um, that just speaks to just how good that film is. Um, what's moving on? What, what's at your, what's your, what's at your uh, number eight spot? Aha. Uh-huh. So my number eight spot is a movie. People know that I, I, it's just crazy to me. Uh, Waves is that sitting at my eight spot, man. This movie, another one of those ones, man, you walk out the theater, like what the hell did I watch? Not in confusion, but in, I, I've never seen a movie take its title so seriously by way in which they tell a story. It was like, no, nah, it was literally going through waves. The movie's literally shot like that. It's also not traditional one, two, three act kind of thing. It's like, no, nah, these there's a I don't know, man. It's it's just one of those that 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 stick with you because of how different it is, man. It's very jarring. It's very it's shot beautifully. There's there's so much uh, good acting in it. The performances all around are crazy. You know, Kelvin Harrison Jr. is literally going stupid the entire time in this movie, man. It's just 
I, I think it's one of those ones that still remain underrated too. I know a lot of people who still have yet to see this film. Um, and I'm, I can't wait until they do <laughs> because it is, uh, it's just, it's just that different, man. But in the, in, in the spirit of emotion and being able to shoot a movie like that while kind of ignoring, of course it follows uh, at least a format, its own format. But it's shot so differently, and I think in the spirit of itself that I had to put it on my A spot, man, because it's it's that different. So, man, shout out to, again, Taylor Russell and the Sterling K. Browns and Alexa Demi's here, and it's just like, yeah, this 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 movie's crazy, man. And so um, that's that's my pick. Yeah, Waves is great. Uh, Trey Edward Schultz directed this. He also directed It Comes and I just talked about that. And so this one is definitely, I think, superior to that movie just because of emotionally what he's able to do. It's also, in a sense, a coming-of-age story, but definitely more so reflective of like the father-son experience as opposed to the mother-daughter experience that we just talked a lot about with Lady Bird. And so I think it definitely presents something different there. And as, as you said, not a traditional story from a one-two-three-act structure. Like It's really two separate stories that are just smushed together, you know, by mm-hmm. a sort of a nexus event that happens in the middle of the movie that changes everything. Really, really good pick here. Um, number eight for me is Moonlight, um, directed by Barry Jenkins, of course, came out in 2016. Moonlight is their most successful movie from a critical standpoint. Uh, this changed everything for A24. I think yeah. that this made them who they are. Obviously, the Best Picture winner after tons of controversy at that Best Picture um that Best Picture Award from that year of the Oscars. But, you know, at that particular ceremony, you had La La Land, which was the huge behemoth that was backed by a studio that everybody thought was going to win. And then Moonlight comes out of nowhere and takes the most prestigious award that you can get. And I think that it's actually reflective of the A24 experience, how they disrupted everything, how they just kind of came out of nowhere. People didn't really anticipate them. And so their win there also, I think, reflected just the time that they were in as an independent film studio. But this is about a young man struggling to find himself. Ultimately, that's what this story is about. And it's so, so just well done from Every standpoint, from the way that the movie looks, from how the story is told, to just the three different actors who are playing the lead, Chiron, here. Because you're telling the story of a young man as he grows up from childhood to becoming a, a an adult man. And it's just really phenomenal work here. I, I'm just kind of knocked out by it. The reason that it's not higher mm-hmm. is because I haven't watched Moonlight as much as others, just because it is a difficult thing to digest. It, it it's is. a really tough movie to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's heartbreaking in many different instances. Ultimately, I think it comes to a really reasonable and satisfying end, but it is a difficult movie to watch because even outside of it being about a young man's struggle to find himself, it's also about his challenges in in being raised by his mother and then also how he grapples with his sexuality and what that means for him and the bullying that he goes through and just all the torment that he has to undergo throughout the course of his life. But it's a beautiful story. It's one of the most important movies, I think, of the past 25 years at least that's been made um, just because of its representation of gay men and LGBTQ plus relationships. It it just it's one of it's one of the the most special movies that they've ever done. And I think it's even more poignant that it was their first fully financed production of a film that just goes to show what their head state was at that particular time that they were they were in the in the method and the business of making game-changing films that would disrupt everything that we had seen before from a, a narrative standpoint to also just a commercial and a critical standpoint as well so moonlight definitely had to be in my top 10 yeah it's in my top 10 too but it's a little higher up the list um so i'll talk about it a little bit later as well my number seven spot <clears throat> ends up being minari actually which we got a chance. Was that early last year? When did that come out? I think early 2021, February. Well, in the middle of the pandemic, I think actually, like early, yeah, yeah, end of 2020, early 2021. Yeah, man, that that movie, I think, 
I remember getting like an email from like A24. It was like, you can watch this at home. <laughs> and I was like, okay, bet. We don't have to, like you said, it was the middle of the pandemic. So they had to kind of, you know, do some movies like that. So you buy a ticket for it, you pick a time, and you're able to stream the movie from this time to this time. And I think that's kind of uh, what happened with Minari, man. But man, Minari still, you know, remains just a beautiful story about a family trying to figure it out, to be honest, man. It is, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of like, uh, just the 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 weight that the movie had. Um, I I think such a small story like that works in the pandemic because a lot of people were focused focusing on their families at that time. Um, in in like also trying to figure it out the same way in which the family minority trying to figure it out. They're out here trying to become farmers. You know what I'm saying? Like people are losing their businesses in trying to figure. And minority was just like, yeah, no, this is real life. And so. Um, you know, in, in that movie, uh, uh, you got Steven Young and Hanya Yiri and the, the, everybody's performances was just so good across the board. Uh, uh, again, as his family tries to figure it out, man. And so, uh, we were also getting, we've been getting a lot of stories about like immigrants too, and seeing how that fits into, you know, what certain pockets of really the United States and what that looks like. And it was it was just really uh, a really good and heartfelt movie that that showed us, I think, exactly what the dynamics of family can be, especially when it's already rough times happening. It sounds very easy and black and white. But as you watch it, the layers really come out through the performances and through uh, uh, the circumstances which they end up being in and the conversations they have with each other and grandma deteriorating health. And I don't know, it was just a lot in that movie that was just like, man, I feel this completely and I think it, of course, it did help that it came out of pandemic, but it's so beautiful, man. And I have to shout out Lee Isaac Chung again for giving us a piece of him. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is very much him all the way. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, man, that, that ends up being my seventh spot. Minara's wonderful. And thank goodness for Lee Isaac Chung, because he nearly quit directing before this movie was made. He was on the verge of just saying, I give up. I don't want to do this anymore because he hadn't been that successful. But luckily, Minari was something that got some attention and got picked up ultimately by A24. So thank goodness that it, that it came out and did, did everything that it needed to do. Um, seven for me is Midsommar, um, which is we've something we've talked about quite a yes, few times sir. here, directed by Ari Aster. Um, this movie, man, knocked me out when we saw it. It came out in the middle of the summer back in 2019. Definitely anticipated just because of what he did with Hereditary the summer prior. And so coming into this, knowing that it was going to be a completely different experience was something that had me obviously curious. And of course, starred the wonderful Florence Pugh, who was certainly on the up and up. I had seen her before in Fighting With My Family, which mm -hmm. is based on, you know, the it's rest of the page and her time within WWE. But this one, obviously very different because this is leaning more into horror. And it's about several, tr you know, friends that travel to Sweden um, to, to attend the summer festival that's held every like 90 years in this remote town. And what ultimately they thought was going to be a dream vacation turned into the biggest nightmare possible um, because these inhabitants of this festival, they participate in some really disturbing stuff some stuff that is not easy to comprehend there's a lot of death a lot of rituals a lot of sacrifice just wild stuff that happens all throughout this movie it's it's a lot of drugs it's a lot of you know things that are happening under the influence um it's a lot of sex it's it's just a crazy crazy experience that you talk about youtube explainer videos this absolutely <laughs> could have one just because of all the just inexplicable things that happen that you really just can't make sense of and you just wonder like why why why, why are these people doing this but it, it boils down to like religious stuff it just 
boils down to religion and tradition, you know, things that have been happening for probably hundreds, maybe not, maybe if not thousands of years throughout this community. And um, yeah, it was one of those, it was one of those films that you just walk out with your mouth on the floor because you can't comprehend really what you saw. So Midsommar, seven for me. This is definitely something that I'll, that I'll always remember as as a theatrical experience. Um, And I'll keep going. I'll talk about my number six here as well. The Safdie brothers with Good Time and what they did here Mm, in 2017. This is slowly but surely become one of my favorite movies and it was really where i discovered robert pattinson as a real force in hollywood mm-hmm. because obviously as we all know robert pattinson was mostly associated with the twilight films so be it those were huge films for the time that they came out but he wanted to go on and do more interesting stuff stuff that was on a smaller scale lower budgets with interesting up-and-coming directors and good time is it's uncut gems before uncut gems it's all about the adrenaline rush oh, it's yeah. about a bank robbery that goes so bad and so wrong and the younger brother of Rod- Robert Pattinson uh, ends up in prison, and so he has to concoct this scheme in order to get him free, and he just mm-hmm. goes on this odyssey throughout New York's underworld throughout the entire movie, and it basically takes place over the course of, like, a night. I love movies that take place over the course of just, like, a few hours, like, one night, you know, like a collateral or something like that, mm-hmm. and so just the adrenaline that kicks off this movie, it never stops. It never lets up, and again, by the end of it, you're reached with the conclusion that leaves you in awe because it just it's, – it's so – unexpected and you can't anticipate where it goes and so by the end of it i was just i was really blown away by by this experience and again safety brothers this wasn't their first film i think that this was their second film but this was their first for a24 and it really for me it introduced robert pattinson as the actor to the world more so than the franchise player that he was in twilight so that's what number six is for me what's uh what's what's number six on your list yeah so first of all good time is crazy Go watch Good Time, y'all. <laughs> it really is a wild movie. Also, on Showtime. Yeah, also one of my early um, uh, uh, Robert Pattinson movies. That and another A24 High Life was like just two, you know, it's like, oh, shoot, this is who this guy really is <laughs> kind of type thing. Um, so six, I would, I'll do six and fifth spot. My sixth spot, I have, man, the last black man in San Francisco. I will never forget when me, you, and TJ went to go see this. <laughs> it is just a crazy movie because nothing like it exists still i think to this day nobody's really made a movie like this man um in which it's it's really about gentrification but the the the, by the means and in the the scope of of a black man in san francisco uh uh and so last black man in san francisco is a film that is really about um trying to think how to tell it it's really about Jimmy and his best friend, Mont, right, played by Jonathan Majors, who (laughs) this movie literally, I'm sure, propelled him into the behemoth he's going to end up becoming here soon. But Jimmy and his best friend are reclaiming a house that Jimmy's grandfather built. And so they're trying to kind of use the house to connect them to to, to the past (laughs) of, of of who Jimmy's grandfather was and so their friendship is tested and their sense of belonging is tested as there's so much gentrification in the removal of black folk happening in san francisco that it's hard for them to really find a spot neither one of them is super successful in any of the things that they that they've really accomplished but jimmy is like look my accomplishment would be really getting this house back that that is how that's how i reclaim my past kind of type thing in 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 man it is just shot it's so stylistic of something we haven't seen man and i love r- really the the 
the performance of Jonathan Majors in this movie is crazy. Um, it's 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 just you had to. It's, it feels like a you had to be there thing because I, I just I remember watching it in theaters and being like, man, this movie is crazy, but also really sad because we a lot of times we don't we may speak in a black movie we may speak to gentrification, but it's not the movie, and that's what this is. It's like no, this we're talking about this. Of course, we we do, we are going to talk about how gentrification does affect other parts, how other people look at you, how you had to grow up somewhere else because of gentrification, how, you know, there's so many different other things, how your friends view you because you live somewhere else now, how this person acts versus how people act still in the hood, how people, you know, and what does it look like to be removed from that? It's, it's, it's just so many layers there. But again, they never, people or, or black movies never talk about that specifically. It's always a part of the movie, not the movie. And so I, I, I enjoyed that very much about it. The performances are crazy. I have to add to Shannon Arnold and Danny Glover and Mike Epps and Rob Morgan. And it's it's just really good, man, to see stories told, uh, uh, you know, really for us. You know, Joe Talbot is a whole white boy coming in here <laughs> telling a story like this, which I, I thought was very impressive. But, of course, he uh, he, he had the help um, of, of, you know, a lot of the, the black counterparts here to kind of figure this uh, this movie out. So. Um, last black man in San Francisco, man, is what is that spot? Yeah, that that that's a great movie. I I it, it hurt me so to cut that one from my <laughs> list. It was definitely I was putting out my list, and I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm doing top ten, and I had like twelve and thirteen, and it was right on the outskirts, man. It really really upset me to cut that one out, but it's so beautiful. It's such a great movie. It was actually the first movie we did for Two Black Nerds Movie Night. I remember that back yes, in uh, 2020, right when the pandemic was kicking off. That was a great experience, and I'm glad people got a chance to watch that along with us because it was it was a special experience to watch. Um, what do you have next at number five? My number five spot is the Great Uncut Gems, man. Just a movie, a movie, a movie, man. You already pretty much spoke about the Safety brothers, um, but what I, what I, one of the thing I really like about Uncut Gems is Loki. How controversial it is. <laughs> There's a lot of people who do not rock with this movie. I think how me and you rock with this movie, and I, th- I just think it's funny because I think some people. I think it also speaks to the anxiety that the movie brings, and a lot of people don't like that anxiety. <laughs> and so the, you know, it's, it's, it's by like design. What, is by design it's like everybody might not be able to handle it also wish people seen good time before seeing this because maybe it would have been a better understanding of what is what's happening going into here you know but even knowing good time i after seeing uncut gems i was like damn this movie is fast paced as shit and but that's exactly what i loved about it i'm of course i'm a guy who could still enjoy story and slow burns and this this movie can be that fast and still include all of that nuance and things that are still in, in, important beats um, that I think uh, uh, the Safdie brothers help reach. Another thing I loved about this movie is Adam Sandler, man. There's there was you know uh, a moment where Adam Sandler was he's he was trying to figure himself out. You know what I mean? Like I mean weird but decent movies like Funny People was coming out. You know what I mean? It's like oh what is this movie really? But it's so interesting seeing somebody who was making like click and Waterboy, and you know what i mean all the adam sandler movies we come to love and to switch to an uncut gems where there's like no laughs sure there's a couple laughs you know what i mean there's a couple like funny things that happen but really this is a story about a man going through it constantly over and over and over and he cannot buy a win for his life and it's also one of the of course just most jarring endings of any movie you've ever seen it happens so fast and so quick and you're like damn is this oh, is that the ending for real and it is yes <laughs> that is very much the ending um but i love the real the realism of it too i feel like this is very much something 
that could and it could ha- probably even has happened to some degree in real life. You know what I mean? Like this story doesn't feel super removed. Of course, it's a movie. Some things have to be dramatized. But it's like, no, nah, pretty sure somebody's in this exact trouble that the character, the Adam Sandler character in the movie is in. Um, and so, man, uh, all those things. I love the, the style of it. I love how the, the the pace of it. I love uh, the performances here. I love how even KG shows up here and is like, yeah, you did a pretty good job, dog. Like, you know what I'm saying? And so, um, Uncut Gems, man, I think is 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 just one of those uh, another one of those things that if you don't like it, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you do like it, high five. We're all on the same page. It's like an Uncut Gems crew. <laughs> it's a whole club of people that like Uncut Gems, but it's, it's a good movie, man. It, it, it gets my fifth spot. I can guarantee y'all this is on my list and it's very high. Um, I'll just say that. Number five for me is The Lighthouse, Robert Eggers' second feature-length film um, that he directed for A24. This movie is such a blast for me. It is so crazy and unpredictable and wild. It's essentially about two lighthouse keepers who are maintaining a lighthouse. It's set in the 1890s, so it is a period piece starring Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. It's dark. It's visceral. It's confusing. It's about so many different things. It's about basically two men ultimately descending into madness and and their relationship with each other as that unfolds and there's sexuality and things of like sexual nature here there's Mm -hmm. just like this psycho analytic perspective that's added there there's the mysteriousness of this island in the lighthouse there's creatures it's all these different things wrapped up into one and it's just told on one of the most beautiful canvases in terms of like filmmaking that I've seen recently, the, the the level of skill here that Robert Eggers is displaying with how he brought this movie to life is unbelievable to me. I think it's his I think it's his best achievement from a filmmaking standpoint, like even better than the Northman that has a bigger budget and more resources. What he did with the lighthouse here is just remarkable. I've never seen anything like it. And the scale that the story is told on with just like the the small amount of resources that he had and the black and white looks gorgeous and the the location that they used here in the water and just ultimately the interior shots and the darkness and how it contrasts with the lightness and the daytime like all of that stuff makes for this really mysterious and wild story that it, on more viewings it's actually like really fucking hilarious i laughed so hard <laughs> when i watched this movie because of the really immature gags that take place. Like mm-hmm. I said earlier, like Willem Dafoe is just walking around farting randomly and he's saying really weird shit, like stuff that, <laughs> like, what does that even mean? Like, what are you talking about? And they're talking about like cooking and I don't like your cooking and stuff like that. Like, it's actually a really darkly funny movie to me. And I just, I watched this movie a lot, you know, and I think that that's like one of the rationales in terms of how I made this list is the films that I've gone back to more mm. than once. And I've gone back yeah. to The Lighthouse quite a bit since it came out three short years ago and i just really really love this one so i had to have it on my list um let's keep moving here though number four what do you have in number four here getting into the top the top picks of our lists uh my number four list uh, on my list is moonlight you just spoke to it man it's just one of those that i i absolutely agree it's hard to go back to i probably haven't watched it in a year and a half two years <laughs> at least um i haven't rewatched it but i just know and, and, and remember the first time one the first time I've seen it and two the the legendary unfortunately it shouldn't have been this legendary but the legendary moment of La La Land and, and Moonlight man it really was was just uh, such a memorable moment but seeing Barry Jenkins kind of going to this this step into the, really the world of blackness and what it means to juggle intersectionality of all those things, man, between, uh, uh, man, sexuality and manhood and even, 
you know, uh, uh, how those things can be both beautiful and dark when it comes to, you know, society at play and the, the toxic masculinity that comes with being a black man, no matter where you fall in the, the spectrum of sexuality of being a black man. It's just it, it, it really hadn't been touched. I think the way in which Barry Jenkins touched on it. I love the way it's shot. I think there's so many just like things that I low key study. I, uh, I have uh, a description of shot deck where they got like a bunch of uh, uh, literally it's literally different shots of movies. You can literally type in a movie and just find like different shots of the movie, what cameras they use at this point, what aspect ratio it is, this and what camera, yeah, like all of it with lenses. And man, I just sometimes I just go back to Moonlight. Man, what the hell was they using right here? It's like, damn, this looks good. Uh, because I think it, it was also storytelling by use of framing. And I think a lot of people don't always do that. Of course, it's like, duh, that's what a movie is. But he was like, he was trying to tell you like, no, this is very something very different by the way I'm using this this very specific uh, uh, view or this very specific angle or there's a reason they're in the hallway and there's one person here. And I don't know, man, it's just, it, I think it's just really well done. And Barry Jenkins... Um, um, just has an eye for these things, man. He also did uh, If Bill Street Could Talk. That's also a very beautifully shot movie. Um, it's not A24, but I also just love the way that looks um, versus, again, how anybody feels about that movie or this and that. It's just It just looks very good. And so I think being able to tell such a hard story, but such an important one, is is a hard thing to pull off. And then win the Grammy off of it, too, is, is huge, man. And it being, I think, A24's first, <laughs> uh, uh, not first, feature film win i'm pretty sure they won before because um brie larson and room i think won actress first i think that was the first technical a24 uh win that they got but this being their first feature film my like best film win i had it had to be top five for me and, and knowing all the things that came with it man so moonlight moonlight's my number four spot yeah perhaps their most important movie that they've ever made i think i think a lot of their success hinged off of the the the, re the release and the reception of that movie um number four for me is the florida project which came out in 2017 directed by sean baker um i, I love this film it, it's a slice of life story it's about a six-year-old girl and her group of friends and their families um telling the story over the course of like a summer about just the hard times that they're going through and i remember first seeing this movie a few years ago and it was just it was one of another one of those other films that just kind of knocked me out because of how simple it is it's not a really complicated thing again it's just a slice of life story it takes place over the course of a few days you're just seeing like the way that these people live they live in this motel complex which is like literally miles away from disney world so the entire story is just reinforcing this idea this juxtaposition of like disney world the happiest place on earth this place that all this magic and these wondrous dreams can be fulfilled if you mm -hmm. go to it and then right on the outskirts of it is this motel community of these really poor people that don't have the best resources in the world. And I've been to Orlando a lot. And Same. this is very much reflective of that experience where you just drive like down the street from Disney world or universal studios. And you can see these communities don't look like what you might see in media or on TV. And so I mm -hmm. think it's just showcasing an underrepresented portion of the population that just doesn't get a lot of time and opportunity to, to to really be spotlighted. So when I saw this, man, I just fell in love with it. It has pretty much unknown actors in the cast, with the exception of Willem Dafoe. Um, he's the, the the most known actor in this movie, and I, I love damn near everything he does. But overall, I just love the Florida Project. It also looks gorgeous. The way that it's shot, it very much reflects the vistas and just the the colors and the saturation of what you would expect to be from a from a Florida type of story. Um, and I, I just overall love this movie. I just saw his other movie that he just did for A24, Red Rock. 
Rocket. Um, not as good. I still liked it, but that's also mm-hmm. like another film that you know it's kind of crazy because it just tells the story of things that you just typically wouldn't see it's about a porn star and he comes back home and he has an unsuccessful career so not as good but definitely you know sean baker another one of those really talented directors who's you know worked with a24 quite frequently but the florida project is, is is special just because of how how much you can relate to people in this type of situation if you've if you've ever experienced something like that so overall i really loved it um, I'll also talk about my number three here. Uh, for me, it's a movie we've talked a lot about recently because it just came out. Everything, everywhere, all at once. It's officially A24's most successful movie ever from a commercial standpoint. Crossed $100 million at the box office. I don't have much more to add about this that I haven't already <laughs> said, especially when I reviewed it. But it's it's incredible. It's an incredible fucking movie. It's probably the best movie of this year. I don't know if anything will be able to dethrone it at this point, maybe. But it's just so special for all that it represents and all that it means for not only them, but just for the people that participated in the movie as well. Michelle Yeoh and just the the actors that surround her in this film, just the potential that they were able to live up to within this movie directed by the Daniels, just the creative imagination behind it. The visuals are crazy and kaleidoscopic on a level that you haven't really seen before. It is a multiversal story. It's science fiction. It's drama. It's family. It's love. It's just so many different things. There's homages and references to other media and, and, and pop culture things, you know, from Disney to Chinese films from Hong Kong like it's it's ridiculous just what they were able to achieve with this movie and how they were able to pack so much into two hours and 20 minutes I've never I've never walked away feeling so full from a movie it's Mm -hmm. rare where you just walk away feeling like you got everything that you thought you were going to get based off of what they showed you and not only that they over delivered so that's why it's so high for me everything everywhere all at once falls in my number three spot my number three spot contains the Bavich. The Witch, man. Um, another one of those. For those that don't know, the poster, for the reason I say for the beach, the poster for The Witch is literally like two Vs separated. And then and then uh, that's how it's spelled. Uh, so, yes, that's why I say The Beach. But, um, man, this is one of those controversial movies, man, where I know so many people who do not rock with this movie. I'm also pretty sure they, like, review bombed this at some point. It was like, this movie is trash and i think the big part of that though is the language barrier that this movie possesses listen if you want to watch the witch y'all turn on subtitles it fixes it helps everything you almost have to watch it with subtitles it's part which is part of which is why i like it is how accurate the language is in the film there's so many movies like this who they do dumb it down a little bit so we can understand what's happening in the movie they'll try to use some of that kind of old english (laughs) you know what i mean but they can't they, 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 yeah, they just try to make it easier for people. Robert Eggers is like, hell no. We are using all the vows and shouts and all of the <laughs> Bible language that you have heard Twixed. in your life. <laughs> Twits. To, 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 to tell the story of this movie, man. Um, and first and foremost, the, the visualness of it all I spoke to earlier man the man was just lighting stuff naturally and still finding ways to get the best shots possible uh, um in in order to for you to feel how old this thing is supposed to be man this is a story um really about in, in a new england i guess family and they're farmers man and the sun disappears and when the sun disappears they they understand that the daughter's supposed to be watching the sun, and so the the at the time of the disappearance, man, there's so much suspicion happening, and then uh uh there's a a goat involved. <laughs> I don't even know how to talk about this movie without spoiling it. That's why it's so hard. But just know that there's a lot of witchcraft things 
that is kind of tor- tormenting this family. Um, and, and and that's pretty much what the movie is about. And how does the is is does the family stay together after you know they're are they being divided? Like what is happening? What is the witchcraft doing to this family? And it just ends up being this really really, of course, artsy but enjoyable film for me, man. When you realize the layers that exist in the movie, um, and it also fits in this realm of horror that you don't always get where. There may not be the most jumps in the world, but there's so many moments in this movie where I'm like, I'm afraid <laughs> for what is happening because of uh, uh, really any and everything, man. There's I have to speak to there's one moment in this movie I, where the son, Caleb, has a monologue. I don't care what anybody says. It is top 10 monologues of the 2010s. I think this monologue is fucking insane. Like every time I watch it, I'm like, do you, does, does anybody else see this? Did he get not get nominated for anything for this monologue? Like that's how good that I really think it is. Um, and so yeah, man, it's it's it really is. I think also the the, the beginning of Ian Taylor Joy for me. Um, it's the beginning of Robert Eggers as we know it. I think this man is literally going to end up. He only has three movies, and I I don't even necessarily love The Lighthouse, and he's already one of my favorite filmmakers. You know what I'm saying? Like he doesn't he hasn't done a ton, but this movie I think jump started a lot for his career. And it, I think it changed kind of some of the ideas of what horror could really be. Um, there's a movie that is higher on this list that I think might have even been uh, inspired by this a little bit on the kind of stories that you can tell. And so, man, I, th- I think The Witch is great. Skip everybody who review bombed it or doesn't like it. Just go get your subtitles and you'll be fine. I promise. Um, there's There can be slow burns, but I love it because there's reasons for the slow burns. It's like pay attention to what is happening and what's being said. Um and, and I think you'll be satisfied. So, yeah, man, The Witch is my third spot. Yeah, The Witch definitely started a hate train for A24 horror movies where people, if they just couldn't click with it, they would just go go off about what they saw and not really relate to it. But it, it's one of those special achievements. Again, I think it definitely set forth a new era of horror films that we're currently living in, which perfectly segues to my number two, my, my number two movie, which is Hereditary, which is directed by Ari Aster. Um, we've circled around it a couple of times here. This is a movie we saw together for the first time, and yes. uh, I was fucking traumatized after watching it. I could not believe how <laughs> scared I was after I saw Hereditary. <laughs> Let me tell y'all something. I've watched horror movies from a very young age, earlier than I should have, if I'm being honest. Like, mm-hmm. I saw a lot of stuff at a very early age that I shouldn't have, which made me numb to a lot of horror experiences, yes. where I would just see a lot of stuff, and I'm just like, that's not really that scary. I'm fine. Like, I've seen much worse than this when i was seven or eight whatever the case may be hereditary had me fucking shook after seeing that film like Mm -hmm. good god when we saw that i walked out of that movie theater just absolutely out of my mind like (laughs) what just happened here because ari aster again as a first time filmmaker to come out of the gate making this type of movie about this Mm -hmm. family that is ultimately dissolving right before our very very eyes very much like the witch more of a modern day story though but you see this family that dissolves because of this tragic incident that happens which was incredibly shocking because the way the film is marketed it this is an example of like how they swerve marketing in a very good and positive way because the way that you see the trailers is so much different than the actual movie but it's for the better because of the story and how it unfolds but to see this family undergo this really this 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 crisis that that, that they're experiencing was just so well done and the craftsmanship was just so high in every respect because yes it is a horror movie i think in in every sense of the word i don't think it's actually trying to fool you in that way it really is a family drama just set within the context of a horror movie and then by the last 30 to 
40 minutes of it, it just goes full-blown balls to the wall, like, we're gonna scare your fucking socks off of you right now, and it's probably the best performance from Tony Collette that we've ever seen. The way that she steps up to the plate here and what she does is just on another level, and her not being recognized really by any really major award body is still a crime. I know that there's a bias against horror, but fuck that. Like it shouldn't be because people can transcend the genre if it's that good. And this is that good and hereditary, man. It was, it was the hit of the summer for me in particular when it came out in 2018 and it was their most successful movie for the longest until it was surpassed by everything everywhere all at once. But I think that this is kind of the high watermark of horror for the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years. It's the best thing that I've seen out of that genre in quite a long time where, you know, you had other movies like Scream revolutionize the genre. Even what James Wan did with the Insidious movies and the Conjuring movies, those are up there. Absolutely. But Hereditary for me is a masterpiece of horror. Um, Hereditary is also my second spot, man. It is. You said it, bro. We've we seen this together for the first time. And I, I just remember I was like. We really couldn't like even talk about it, <laughs> but we also kind of tried to talk about like it's just so such a wild ride of a movie. And even beyond horror, it's disturbing. And a lot of people aren't really good at merging the two. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people, it's 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 really it's it's really in its own class in that way, because you can go watch a saw and understand how disturbing like a Saw movie is, but you won't be really afraid of anything. Hereditary is like, no, we can do it all. We're gonna, we're gonna disturb you. We're gonna make you afraid. We're gonna range your anxiety. I mean, all of it. We're gonna even make you sad at moments. There's moments you're gonna question the things that you're seeing on screen because that's how well it was shot. You know, like there's a moment in that last thirty minutes you're talking about, and you go, is that? what is that right there? <laughs> and then you're like, oh shit. <laughs> That's the <laughs> Like, I mean, in, in the first time you see it, it's just so wild, man. It's, it's just something I, I had never seen before. One of the other things I really like about this film is, I, this is another one of my movie night films. I literally ran back with this to some, to some friends for a movie night. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> I know they ain't seen this before. Really, uh, another thing I love about 824 is I usually know people, other people haven't seen it. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I can put this on and them not know what this is. That's one of the movies I played, and they were like pissed at me afterwards. Like, bro, what the fuck did you just show us? I'm like, I hey, that's this is this movie's insane, but you're gonna be happy eventually that you've seen one of the best horror movies of all time. Because <laughs> um, that's really how good it is, man. I, I it really changed the way I think I view horror today. Like you said, it really just how Scream changed things and uh just how I feel like the conjuring insidious one changed things. Hereditary changed some stuff, man. It really did. And it's going to take a while for us to hit another one of those landmarks, I think. Um, just as James Wan changed things, Ari Aster's like, nope, I can change it too. So now I'm like looking for uh, uh, the next person to be like, okay, let's do this again. Because that's really when, when horror gets really good, when people are, people are constantly changing things. Um, We've seen Jordan Peele do it. You know what I mean? We get out. It's like, okay, who's the next person that's going to change this thing? And Hereditary really did set another one of those blueprints, man. So, again, easily easily my second spot, too. Tony Collette, man, you man, you need a makeup at this point, Oscar, from somebody somewhere, because that is a performance for your ass. I don't even know how we get it to you, but it needs to happen one day because um, it's really not fair that that that, that horror gets this, this, this black ball. In, in when it comes to these awards, but uh, hopefully we'll figure it out at some point, man. It's 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 that good. Also, the fact that Ari Aster had the balls to make a 
two hour and seven minute horror movie and a 24 had the balls to release it like a lot of movies of this ilk are typically 90 100 minutes they're relatively short you know they they often try to get to the point and get there quicker and this was allowed the room to breathe to mm-hmm. tell the story in the way that it needed to be told because you don't get that last 30 minutes if you don't get the preceding 90 which set up everything so perfectly so definitely a triumph on that respect number one for me man Akun Jims. uh if you know me this is not a surprise i fucking love this movie <laughs> i think it's just a burst of pure adrenaline and energy it's non-stop it's frantic there's a lot of comedy for me i laugh so much at this movie and it also includes probably the best performance by an athlete in a movie ever i mean kevin garnett is a natural in this film it's all about adam sandler's character who is a compulsive and obsessive gambler he's always looking for the next score and the next score and the next score and it ultimately ends up being a tragedy in some respects because you see this man who just cannot get over himself he cannot allow himself to become bigger and better than this issue that he has because as funny as it might be as frantic as it might be as anxiety inducing as it might be it's kind of sad to see him go down in that way but it was only sad the first time once you actually know how this whole story plays out Upon rewatch, this is just like a fucking joy. I, I watch this for pleasure now because I don't feel guilty anymore. And I just, I have so much fun watching Uncut Gems. It's kind of like the style movie of the past like five or 10 years. All the looks that we got from Adam, Adam Sandler in this movie that Ooh, became memes fire. just became iconic. Like all the Gucci shit he was wearing, the jewelry. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the Furby necklace became like an iconic thing in and of itself. The memes, this is how I win. All of that stuff. Like it turned into like this mini little culture upon its release. And like you, I agree. I love how controversial it is. I love that a lot of people don't like it because when people saw this movie on Netflix, they were like, what the fuck? This sucks. <laughs> like, what is this? And I'm like, Oh, that's great. I love that. It even got like, I think when it went wide, like initially when they had the limited release, which I was fortunate enough to attend before it went wide, had an A plus cinema score. People loved Mm -hmm. it or A minus or something like that. Like everybody loved it. Very small audiences. Then it goes wide, has a C plus cinema score. So everybody immediately turned on it almost instantly. And I was just like, whoa. And at first I was kind of upset by it. But the more that I just like watched the movie and digested it, I'm like, no, you know, it's kind of cool to love something that not that many people love because I see other things into it that, that enjoy me that other people might not relate to. And that's totally fine. If you don't connect with it, I'm totally okay with that. But Uncut Gems for me is just the most enjoyable, the most wildly absurd, and the most pleasurable movie that I've seen come out of A24. And I think it's really, from from that standpoint, it's, it's so different than everything else that they've done because of the Safdie brothers and their style of directing and what they go mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. and the type of character studies that they do because they really are character study type of directors between what we saw in Good Time and ultimately what we saw in Uncut Gems. And for that, it's my best movie that they've ever released. I think it's at the top of the mountain for me. And that's why it's number one. Man, what a movie. Um, my number one spot, which... If you can't tell by process of elimination what this is, then I don't know. But everything, everywhere, all at once is my number one A24 movie, man. I, I, man, I don't even know where to freaking start with this film. But I do remember you were given <laughs> your uh, your rundown and review of this movie on the podcast. You were like, yeah, I know you. You're probably going to like this. And I, I walked out the theater like, damn, why do you have to be so right? <laughs> I've never like left a movie. Plus, we've been letterboxing a lot lately, right? I've never left a movie and just been like, "Damn, five stars!" <laughs> like <laughs> immediately. immediately. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it didn't even. I had. I have no questions. I. It was just like, yeah, this is clearly a five star film, man. And I don't do that. We don't do that a lot. Period. Um, it's a very rare thing for us. Uh, but 
that's how much I really, really enjoyed this movie, man. There's so many, this movie appeals to so many senses of uh, everything, man. There's kung fu action in it. People know me. I love fighting movies. Yes, like give me, there's that. There's a, a underlying story about a family and being torn apart, not only because of relationships with each other, but the relationship that they have with the universe, the ways in which they think they've been uh, uh, cheated out of a future, cheated out of certain things in their past, or thinking they should be one way and thinking it's too late to be something else, and how the pressures in which uh, uh, the your parents put on you and the person you're supposed to be because of that, and where does all that stress go, and where do... It's just so many things in this movie that work for me, man, and that it it how visually stunning it is. Um, how I, there's not a lot of films out there that just have the nihilism this movie does, the existential crisis. That's like okay, but what is life? People ask that all the time, but I've I've rarely seen a movie that asked that question. That's like no, but what is life? Like why? What is the purpose? Where are we here? The whole rock sequence in this movie. It, you would think would be like the dumbest, but it's like really the most profound of like, no, here we are. You know what I'm like? This is, this is it. And so I love all the questions that are, that are asked in this movie. And it's really interesting because a lot of them don't get answered because it's up to you. That's really the whole fucking lesson in the movie. It's like, it's up to you. And I love that about it, man, because nobody asks those questions and you get that, that deep layer on top of some Kung Fu shit. In in comedy, people, there's freaking butt plugs in this movie. And like <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis doing crazy in hot dog hands. And it's like, what are we watching? But it all works for, for exactly what they're going for, man. Um, I love the action. The costumes in this movie are insane. There's moments in the movie in which Michelle Yeoh's character is bouncing through universes and they have to come up with a costume for each, every universe. It's like freaking like a hundred in like 10 seconds. And it's like, y'all did the work to do that. There's a freaking Pixar reference in this movie that's funny. And there's... It's just, it, I think this movie is freaking nuts, man. To do it on the budget they did it on, again, and, and, and to do it with the cast uh, that they gave us, man. The Like you said, what it means for Michelle Yeoh. Stephanie Shu here. Oh, my God. I don't know. She's just so underrated, I think. Hopefully, when these, hey, listen, when these awards come around, I, ooh, my, I'm going to be so upset if I don't hear everybody get nominated for something in this dang movie i want costumes nominated i want best picture i want best director i want best song. i mean all of it because i i i think it really does deserve that man um and so yeah this is this is absolutely by far my, my, my top spot i love this movie this is one where like i think i can also just pop in and just have a good time because i'm never gonna not laugh at a lot of things that are in this movie because they're so ridiculous um but also, it gives me the action that I need to, man. And so, this is, uh, I think, a really a genre-defining movie. As you know, uh, even as we talk about like Moonlight is just is important. I think everything, everything, everywhere, all at once is important too. Especially as we're talking about multiverses across m different parts of Hollywood. It's like no, freaking everything, everywhere, all at once did it without superheroes. <laughs> it did it without all of that. It did it while talking about existentialism. And so, I, I, I think it really is. Uh, of course, meta in that way, but it, it works, I think, on all levels for me personally, man. And so, again, this is that's the reason it's my number one spot. 
truly one of their finest achievements um let's go back and uh recap our list really quickly for listeners i think we only had like five overlaps only about half of our list so this just goes to show the breadth and the depth of the catalog of what they've released again more than 100 films in over a decade but i'll just quickly recap here my top 10 uh, number 10 for me was the tragedy of Macbeth. number nine was Lady Bird. number eight was moonlight number seven was midsommar number six good time number five the lighthouse number four the florida project number three everything everywhere all at once number two hereditary and number one a cut gems for my list number 10 eighth grade number nine ladybird number eight waves number seven minari number six the last black man in san francisco number five uncut gems number four moonlight number three the witch number two hereditary and number one everything everywhere all at once and those are our top 10 A24 movies of all time. Definitely hit us up and let us know what you think about our list. Let us know if you agree, disagree. Let us know if you've seen any of these films. And if you haven't, I can certainly say with everything we've talked about today, we would highly recommend these things. Let's go ahead and transition. And as we wrap up here, talk about a few quick news items of the week. First up, Fantastic Four. So we know that things are in the works with Fantastic Four. We just recently talked about on our She-Hulk episode two review how Matt Shackman was rumored to be the director. Well, it's pretty much all but confirmed now because Matt Shackman just dropped out of his directing duties of the next Star Trek film, presumably because he's going to be tied up with Fantastic Four. An official announcement has not come out from Marvel Studios, but all signs indicate he will be directing that movie. Even Deadline is sort of corroborating. Ooh, easy for me to say. They are... They are also confirming that this is in the in the works right now, that Matt Shackman is going to be possibly directing this movie. But there's some other things that are coming out about this film as well that we should definitely highlight. So former Birth Movies and Death Editor-in-Chief, which is a movie blog, Devin Faraci, he revealed on the Marvel Vision podcast that Marvel Studios has, has apparently spoken with Penn Badgley to star as Reed Richards, a.k.a. Mr. Fantastic in the Fantastic Four movie. Penn Badgley plays um, in, in You. He's the lead star of You. And uh, other reports are also claiming that Marvel will be revealing the primary cast for the Fantastic Four at the upcoming D23 Expo, which is going to be happening next week. We do know that Marvel Studios has time allotted to talk about future announcements as it relates to movies and TV. So some things about Fantastic Four are in orbit here. Firstly... What do you think about Pim Badgley possibly being Reed Richards? This is not confirmed. This is just a rumor. This is nowhere near confirmed. We, we shall see soon enough. And then also, do you think that the likelihood is there that Marvel will actually announce the cast at D23 in a couple weeks here? Yeah, I think Pim Badgley actually kind of works pretty well. I think age-wise and hair-wise, <laughs> I think I think he, he works as Reed Richards, man. I think the only thing is... I got to take the Joe out of my mind. That's really it. At the end of the day, I'll be watching this like, you're not going to kill Sue, are you? I hope not. Like, and that's, I feel like that's how I would watch that movie. But I'm all for Penn Pen Badgley, man. I think he he, he fits the, the bill. It's interesting. I haven't thought about that until they brought it up. I was like, oh, shoot. That's an interesting pick. I think I'm okay with that. And so um, I think he's a very fine actor. And I also love um, kind of how he exists in the medium of being he's 35 but when it comes to acting he still feels very young to me and but not too young and that feels like a Reed Richards we would get or I would I feel like I would need to get so I think Pim Badgley makes sense for that um here I absolutely think it would be great if we got the cast at D23 I think it would it would be another first of all D23 of course the news always is going to hit you know, all of the, 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 the outlets and us figuring out what the news is. And so I think it would be cool if something big like that was to be revealed at D23. I'm all for it. I'm not 100% sure if that's going to be um, um, the reveal at D23. But 
I'm I I feel pretty confident in saying it's a smart thing, smart decision for them to do that. Especially, it's not like it's it's the most far away movie in the world. Um, it's been announced as a movie, so usually casting comes shortly after, um, as as, as well as um directing. So I'm as well. I'm I'm cool with both being announced at D23 for sure. It put a little bit of a, more excitement in me too to be like, okay, this is the the cast I'm getting. So I'm all for it. This Fantastic Four movie is an incredibly, incredibly important movie for Marvel Studios. Like they have to get this right. This is uh, one of their key foundational cornerstone groups and teams. It's the first family of Marvel, and so with the casting. You have to make sure that you are getting the best people possible for these roles and also people that are going to play them for at least a substantial amount of time. And if it is Penn Badgley as Reed Richards, I think I'm all here for it because as important as Reed is, it's also as equally as important as who you surround him with with the remaining Fantastic Four. But I do think that he's the foundational character. You have to get him right first and foremost. And Sarah Halle Finn is the casting director for Marvel since the beginning is pretty much just flawless when it comes to this like i don't think she's made a bad casting really yet they've they they don't they don't mess this up this is one of the things that if they don't get anything else right they get the casting right so if pin badgley is that person they've obviously seen something in him that is uh definitely going to be serviceable to the character of reed richards but i think he has the look i think he i think he fits great for who reed richards is and i think he can absolutely maintain that personality that you need to come out of reed that that narcissistic quality, you know, that 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 really pretentious quality that exists within him. I think I think Penn Badgley is good for that. And uh, D23 seems all but inevitable where we'll get an announcement of the cast here. I mean, they've been working on the director. This movie's been in active development for a long time now. This is not anything new. They've been working on this for a while. And it's coming out in November of 2024. So we're just a little bit over two years away. Mm-hmm. Now's the time to start getting this news, you know, because they're going to start filming I would presume probably within the next six to eight to nine months to, yep. to get to get things started. So you need the cast. You need the director in place. I think we're getting all that in D23. I think they've been holding off for this mm-hmm. to make a really big splash. So I can't wait to see it. Hopefully it all is true and we can get some news really soon here. Um, another casting news we just found out today. Megan Thee Stallion is going to be appearing in She-Hulk Attorney of Law. Now, of course, we've been reviewing that series every week. We got two episodes now. We still have seven to go. So she's going to pop up here somewhere in season one. We don't know who she's playing. We don't know what the role is. Hopefully it's not herself. Hopefully she's actually playing a character because I don't want to see Meg just like continue to play versions of herself like we just saw in P-Valley. So I'm hoping she actually plays somebody. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on who she might be or just, you know, reactions to this in general? Hmm. Not really. I actually have no idea. What I do like about this is that Megan Thee Stallion low-key is like the real life She-Hulk. A woman is built different. <laughs> so I think that's why she's being cast here. Um, but actually, yeah, I, I don't know, man. Ho- it would kind of be cool if, like, either one, she becomes friends with Jen somehow. I would like to see that. Because usually um, a celebrity gets cast and it's very much a cameo, not necessarily, like, a character in a show. And since this is kind of more funny, I would love to see her be more reoccurring, I think, than a normal celebrity would be. I'll be. I think that would be cool. It'd also be cool if, like, I don't know, Meg Thee Stallion is just somebody she's defending at some point. She could just be like a throwaway Marvel hero um, that they could they could quickly say, okay, you have to defend this hero today. I don't know who that would be. I had to do more research to be like, hmm, who looks like Megan Thee Stallion? <laughs> I don't think anybody does. No, um, but it, it, yeah, I, I think I would like those scenarios in terms of who she would be in the show. But I'm not sure. 
yeah, we'll have to see. Definitely seven episodes left. So again, she'll be popping up soon here. We we presume. Um, in other news, we just found out Resident Evil, the Netflix series, has already been canceled. Only oh. had one season on the air. Um, I didn't watch it, but you did. You reviewed it on the show. Is this shocking to you? Were you hoping for a next season? What What do you think of this? No, nah, it's not shocking at all, bro. Um, especially <laughs> after seeing Wesker magically have a flat top, bro. Where <laughs> <laughs> I forgot you said that. Hey, man, the boy. It's the fun. It's by far probably one of my the funniest TV moments this entire year because it's like okay here's a flashback, and this nigga got a whole flat top, bro. That nigga like Blade. It was crazy. It was just so jarring because he never has hair. Why are we putting wigs on this man? It made no sense. Like the the iteration of Wesker already had no hair, so just let him have no hair. <laughs> you didn't have to do that. But nah, it is um yeah, it's just not surprising. I think there was potential there, but they just didn't execute correctly. I think uh, uh, there's certain remnants of Resident Evil where I think if you kept certain things and threw away other things that it starts to make sense. And again, for some reason, it took the last episode for it to be like, okay, this might be going somewhere. End of season. What? (laughs) Why did y'all take so long to get good kind of type thing? And I'm sure numbers are way down either one because of word of mouth or two because just lack of interest. Resident Evil just been bumping their head on the wall for so long, man. If it's not video game related, they have really been struggling. And so I'm not still not sure where Resident Evil live action anything exists at this point. Poor Resident Evil, man. I, I guess I don't know. They just keep rebooting and rebooting it until they get it right. Somebody got to figure it out. S- somebody has to do something because they, they just cannot. They can't figure it out. Like it's, the games are doing tremendous. But like with mm-hmm. this live action adaptation stuff, like what the fuck? What are we doing here? This is one of the most beloved video game franchises and nothing has worked really. Like nothing, nothing. has been great. Crazy. And these Netflix series, like I, I imagine this costs probably a pretty penny. It's not the most expensive thing, but it's not mm-hmm. cheap to make something like this. And so if people aren't watching, they're going to give it the axe and they got to go. So it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. Um, and another Netflix news, our last news item of the week. We just got an official title for the Beverly Hills Cop sequel that Netflix is producing. It's officially going to be called Beverly Hills Cop Axel Foley. Um, okay, I guess whatever. I guess it's like the Batman colon Bruce Wayne. Like, what is that? You, why, why are we? It's kind of redundant. Uh, he is the Beverly Hills Cop. But uh, beyond that, we know that this movie is going to be released on Netflix. Production is officially underway. Uh, Mark Malloy is going to be directing this picture. And we also just found out that Taylor Page from Zola and one of the most frequently working actors out there, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, has also joined the cast. There's no official release date, but this is uh, continuing the trend of a lot of stars returning to their pride and glory franchises and IP that made them famous decades and decades ago and just doing another iteration. Eddie Murphy himself just did this with coming to America that came out last year. That was a sequel that came out 30 plus years after the original. This is the same thing. I think the last Beverly Hills Cop 3, which was fucking awful, came out in like 91 or 92, something like that. So this will be well after more than 30 years after that 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 last sequel that we just got. But uh Beverly Hills Cop is one of my favorite comedies. Like it's one of my favorite Eddie Murphy performances. Yes, sir. I actually think I actually think two is better than one. I fucking love two uh because of like what Tony Scott did with that movie. Mm-hmm. But Beverly Hills Cop one and two man, those hold really, really special places in my heart. Very similar to how Coming to America did. So I'm dubious as to how this is gonna be and how this will turn out. You know, a fourth Beverly Hills cop after all this time, especially after the third one being the train wreck that it was, the phoned in performance that Eddie Murphy gave in that film. I, I can't say that I'm excited, but I'm a, I'm a little bit hopeful just because Eddie 
has been doing some interesting work lately. Like coming to America, this most recent one wasn't terrible. It was fine, but it was mm-hmm. it was a rehash of the first one. But I really love Dolomite is my name. That exactly. was a really really fun experience for me. So I have some hope for this, but I'm 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 cautiously optimistic for what Beverly Hills Cop Four is going to ultimately end up being. Yeah, man. I also enjoy this series a lot. This is one of those ones that just my mom's watching it, so I'm watching it too. Um, and I, I, I found myself just loving them, man. I, I think I'm also on the Beverly Hills Cop 2 train. It, it could also because it's the one I just seen the most. <laughs> but uh, I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a reevaluate and watch one, two, and three back to back here soon. Um, but man, I've, a lovable franchise. Still a huge Eddie Murphy fan. Like you said, Dolomite is my name was really good. I don't know why this is the title. I can, why not just go with four? <laughs> I just can't. It's right there. Just stick unless, with numerals. Unless they're going to like recast someone. You know, like if this is like Axel Foley and the next one is like some random new black actor. <laughs> you know oh, what I'm interesting. saying? interesting. Okay. I hadn't thought um, about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only thing I can think of. Like maybe this is a passing of the torch and they feel like a franchise is really coming out of this thing. A 2022 franchise is coming out of this thing. That's the only thing I can think of. But other than that, I don't understand the title at all. Uh, but yeah, man, I'm very excited to watch it. I, I just love the way these movies feel. They're always fun to watch. Like I've never been like bored watching a Beverly Hills Cop. They're a great time. Uh, they're funny. Yeah, they're just they're just really good movies, man. And so I'm I'm definitely excited to see this. Yeah, we'll see how everything shakes out with the development of this movie over the course of the next couple of years. But with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have for this episode of Two Black Nerds. Thank you again, as usual, for tuning into another podcast. We will, of course, be back this upcoming Friday to talk about episode three of Marvel Studios She-Hulk Attorney at Law. As usual, we'll be recapping and breaking down all the events of the latest episode. And we will be back next week, Tuesday, September 5th, after the holiday, to talk about the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. That's right. The series is finally debuting this week on Amazon Prime. We're going to get the first two episodes, so of course we'll have to break that down. And as usual, we'll be talking about episode three of the Game of Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon. And we also have another movie to review, a brand new film, Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, starring Sterling K. Brown and Regina Hall. is going to be coming out this week, so hopefully we get a chance to check that out and talk about that as well. But with that being said, we'll see y'all next time. Yes, yes, y'all. We are Audi 5000. Please check out our Nerds of the Thunder collection at twoblacknerds.com. This is the year of 2022 black nerds and remember always bet on black appreciate y'all love y'all thank you for listening to another episode of two black nerds where we're too black too nerdy and we out y'all peace me and my money attached emotionally i get to clutch and if you get too close to me i'm at the top where i'm supposed to be jumping in the gang niggas act like they coaching me 400 rats ain't shit but it's showed to me i'm on the road and i bet that you're holding me when i'm in traffic it's always a pole